because you're super smart, Jeremy. Oh, this is my show, huh? Yep, this is the John show. All right, we need some we need some special John show theme music. It's the John, it's the John show. <laughs> We're gonna play name that game with the audience. Believe it or not, John's on the show again. I kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about last week. It was that was my fault. It was my bad. I was out of town. We talked about doing a remote recording, but I'm glad we didn't because I just I didn't didn't end up having any time. Yeah. It's the way it always works when you travel. You think you're gonna have more time, but you end up just working it all away or just trying to get yep. some sleep. I'm. I feel like I'm never even very optimistic about how much time I have, but I still overestimate how much time I'm gonna have. Yeah. I thought I'd have like at least a couple of hours and it seemed like I did, but you know, after you catch up with the family, do the whole FaceTime thing and then attempt to get your head into working on something, uh, it just, you don't have much time. Yeah. It's tough to be productive. And even though, you know, you're not supposed to skip a week on podcasts, supposedly according to podcast experts, it, I don't know, sometimes it's kind of nice just to get a break every once in a while. Yeah. Mainly, like last week, just because I needed to catch up on work, and this takes out like at least half of my Wednesday. Well, so there was two big things that happened that I didn't get to get your perspective on. Um, One being the, the, I think it was the Anheuser-Busch lawsuit thing with SAP. And that was probably a couple weeks ago. Remind me of what the the, the material was on that. You don't even know. Don't even know. No, I got to look it up too. (laughs) That's how long ago it was. Did they sue? So, so the, the title of this article is, actually, is what actually brought it into the fold of our universe. And it says, using Salesforce to access SAP, question mark, pour yourself oh, a kn- stiff I, drink. No, I do know this. Yeah. And this is actually, I think, very much a podcast topic. Well, yeah, because it says Salesforce in the title. Yeah, so they're, <laughs> they're basically, and I don't know what the details are in terms of exactly how they were doing it, but they're using Salesforce as either, I mean, it could have been as something as simple as an iframe or a canvas or something, and they were accessing their SAP instance through, you know, like a Salesforce iframe or something. Or Is they were, it was? or it might've been the OData, whatever Salesforce calls that their thing. Yeah, um, maybe. Something like that. Well, but, I doubt it, I, it couldn't, it, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what the exact issue was because I thought it was all about just accessing SAP data. Because if it was, if it was like kind of shoving in the screens, I, I, and if there's like a proper SSO connection to, to SAP, I don't see there being an issue. But I think the issue was that they were providing access to information that was in SAP to more users than they had license in SAP. So essentially, which isn't uncommon to hear to hear of, which is, you know, you have this other system, but let's say you have all your sales reps in Salesforce, but they need some information, not all, just some read-only information from SAP. And that comes in through an integration, typically through one account. But I think where they run afoul is that they don't have this. They don't have user licenses for all those sales reps that are accessing this information. Or it says they, yeah, they integrated. And this is this is an article from February. Was there? I feel like there was news on this, but I'm looking for anything in the past month, and nothing's coming up. But yeah, I mean, this was like a. So it was when it wasn't Anheuser Busch. This is where you throw me off. It was Diageo. Oh, was it? Yeah, I think it was. Unless this is a different one. Uh, so this was a May fourth one, and this was like AB, the parent company. In fact, in the beginning of this, it says uh, SAP takes another brewery. 
Anheuser Busch and Bev. Yeah. I mean, Diageo owns a couple of breweries, but they're mainly a like a liquor play. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So th- the the one I'm looking at, this Diageo one, it says that they they integrated SAP with software from Salesforce using an SAP PI integrator software. Hmm. So this one said in this statement, uh, the statement of claim asserts multiple breaches of a September 30th software license agreement based on allegations that the company employees used SAP systems and data directly and indirectly without appropriate licenses that the company underpaid fees due under the SLA. So that that was the Anheuser-Busch InBev, at least, quote of what the what the arbitration said. Uh, I, just, I can't find anything on that. Yeah. SAP, AB, InBev, right? That should bring something up? Uh, well, this this one was actually There's titled. Nothing. I'm not sure. You want me to message it to you so you can see what I'm seeing? Nothing. Sure. On our uh, secure communication line. Logging in now, two-factor authentication, oh, fingerprint, gosh. face print, butt print, and <laughs> access granted. Oh, that's why you had your pants off. <laughs> Use your butt print. Yeah, got to be prepared. That's That sounds like it's about five-factor. Face, thumbprint, thumb <laughs> voice, retina, and butt. <laughs> um, the butt hmm. part's just for fun, though. Seeking damage of $600 million. Yeah. Huh. I mean, it's always interesting whenever you talk about how how these systems get integrated and, and you know, ultimately. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the, the target in the first case was Diageo, a British company that brews beer and distills whiskey around the world. Yeah. SAP accused it of allowing staff to use Salesforce system to indirectly access Salesforce data right. in, in an SAP database. God, that is, who's suing? SAP is suing? Yeah. Wow, does that not make you hate SAP? You just looked at the data through from another... Well, I mean, I, mean, even, I guess they, I guess Salesforce has has things like that in their contracts that you can't you can't you have to have a license account like a dedicated license account to access that data. You can't just like have one user account. But, the, but, then, but that makes it sound like that's Salesforce's data. It's not Salesforce's data. That's true. We should actually read that damn license agreement one of these days. I know. I bet there's some gems well, that in was, there. That, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I remember when I first read this, and again, this was a couple of weeks ago, and I'm trying to dredge it back up in my memory. But I remember thinking that I was like, they're they're suing because they're accessing data, but it's their data, but it's it's their system. But if it's only read only, if they're not accessing and pushing, you know, trying to manipulate that data, then what? I what mean, is what if it issue? is? What if it's? What if it is read write though? I mean, there's AP, SAP has APIs for all that stuff. Why can't you have another system that reads and writes data from it? Yeah, no. I mean, and I guess I can. Well, see. it makes me wonder: Is SAP are they doing this because they're hurting and they they they're trying to close all gaps in their licensing model to make sure that they're they're uh, growing profitability because maybe they're lacking in, in a few areas? I mean, doesn't that seem like like one of those things where you care but you don't really care, or is it because it's Anheuser Busch and it's worth six hundred million dollars that you're going after it? I don't know. I mean, are they hurting? Let's see. That's a good question. What are they on? Are they in the New York Stock Exchange? Let's see. Financials. We really should research this um, stuff more before we talk about it. <laughs> I know. Income available. No, no. Yeah, I can't tell. Let's see. Income before. I mean, they make, you know, in, income before tax, profit before, t- or let's say just after tax. Well, I guess let's count in before tax because that's how much, you know, not just cash flow, but actual profit. Yeah. About a billion dollars a quarter. Wow. Now, is that up or down? Well, let's see. That was the three months ending in June. 
Let's look at let's look at June from a year ago. Okay, it was one point one billion. So their profit is is down okay, a bit. Yeah, but I mean, oh, poor them. They're only they're only profiting after or before tax. You know, a billion dollars. <laughs> poor guys. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it does kind of make you consider um, what you're getting into when you're architecting something like this, and you're you're kind of responsible for how this inter- interaction happens and how the, how things flow. And but ultimately, it's it's the company's responsibility to make sure that they they have the licenses allotted for for that type of access, right? I, I guess. I mean, it's like like a company comes up and says, "Hey, we want to integrate our SAP with Salesforce to give our sales guys some access to some like some yep. order information or something." Well, haven't you done something where you write an integration that pulls data from Salesforce, puts in some database where other users can uh, f- view it, hook up reports to it? Well, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, I mean, there's there's integrations where we send data to SAP like to create orders and things, no, no, and there's like so okay, let's let's just take Salesforce as an okay. example, but it's where you you're pulling data out of out of Salesforce and it's visible to other people. Through like through that database, or maybe they've hooked up Crystal Reports or one of yeah. these things to it. I mean, they're, yeah. but the in, is that against Salesforce's? I mean, they've got, obviously used a user license to get that data out of there, right? But I think the I think where it comes across is if 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 you're using that that solution to bypass buying more licenses. So if you're if you're say you have an external like portal or something, and instead of buying the Salesforce licenses, you create this public portal and you have a bunch of people going in there that you're not paying licenses for. Or what what happens when Salesforce starts suing because you know you're you're dumping your data out of Salesforce and hooking it up to Tableau, or or something, and and to avoid buying Wave, yeah, is they still call it Wave? No, it's called uh, Einstein Analytics, I think. Oh God! <laughs> but I think you know I think in general, I mean, most software companies, at least that that sell licensed software, you know, by the user, they have some kind of provision yeah. in their contract that says you know you can't be sharing these licenses. You gotta. This is a license for everyone accessing data. This seems like greed gone bad, though. And they're suing for six hundred million. And according to this, you know, ABNV have only spent one hundred and forty million on all software in two thousand sixteen. It's just it's ridiculous. Mm. And this is I don't know. And also, is it how smart is it to sue some of your biggest customers? Yeah, that's what I wonder. I mean, that's why I wonder if maybe they're hurting a bit or something. They're trying to they're trying to get some money of it because it just it just seems like from a PR perspective, it's not good. From an industry perspective, it's not good. I mean, it's going to make people think twice about SAP in the short term, or at least make people really nervous about how they're interacting with SAP. Um, Here's an interesting thing. This is from just last month, and someone did a straw poll of SAP customers. Seventy six percent of SAP customers have concerns or fears that the consequences of, or sorry, they have concerns or they fear the consequences of raising indirect access concerns with SAP. So there's a lot yeah. of companies that are doing this indirect access. Yeah, but they're scared to say anything about it. Of course, right? Um, and they're just looking for clarity. But yeah, that's something I think SAP is going to have to do a, a, a almost like a a bit of marketing around to say, you know, or at least, you know, put some context in why they went after AB and, and, you know, where you should be checking if you're in compliance. And and maybe they are, maybe they're reaching out to customers directly. Yeah. And doing that. Or I'm sure customers, if they're smart, they're calling up SAP saying, Hey, I heard about this thing. Uh, Let me know. Cause I want to make sure we're in compliance. You're not trying to, you know, sue us for 600 million. Yeah. And maybe it's one of those things where they're, they need to, they feel like they need to make an example. Of uh, maybe so they can scare everyone. Yeah, well, they're German, right? We must make an example. Is that, is that a German <laughs> accent? I have no idea. <laughs> Sorry. All right, all right. So moving on, the second big big news of the day is uh, Equifax. The Equifax, Equifax oh, breach. Yeah, 
Um, um, what do you? What do you? I don't know what to even say about this. This hasn't been said other than were I know. You, I mean, were, it's, were it's you affected? Covered. Did you? Did you sign away your rights by checking no. to see if you, I did? No, and I I was affected. I'm assuming I'm affected. I'm just going to assume I'm affected and not waive my right to sue just in case. <laughs> uh, well, so I think more interesting from a technology perspective is is there were some articles blaming uh, Apache Struts for the issue yeah. for vulnerability there, and I went to I went to Apache's site to get their take on it. They have a blog post on that. I didn't read. I saw that, but I didn't read it. What they say about it? Um, they kind of danced around it. They kind of said like we, it hasn't been 100 percent proven that it was a breach on our software. There's vulnerability, yeah. and if it was. It would have been patched pretty quickly if it was that kind of vulnerability because they explain their process. And I'm not sure if this is just them protecting themselves or or if this is just – I mean, it sounds reasonable. I mean, they, they do their best to work with the reporter of, an, of a vulnerability. They give their team time to put a fix out, and then they publicly announce the vulnerability so yeah. that others can, can start to patch their software and make sure they're patched. Um, but they didn't really say – I mean, they, they, they were throwing around this, this one – Apache version number, let's see what it was, CVE-2017-9805. Well, that's, so the CVE, that's the, um, what does CVE stand for? That, that's the, that's the vulnerability ID. So 143 million consumer records. Sorry, autoplay, damn autoplay. Um, I thought I have that turned, I have some plugin that supposedly blocks things from autoplaying, but apparently it doesn't work very didn't well. Didn't work that well, yeah. Um, what was I saying? So you're talking about that CVE 2017. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's there's a d- database. It's CVE dot but it's a it's like a database of uh, vulnerabilities. Yeah, and so they get reported there, and yeah, you, it, basically if you know of a report, like you can go there and request to get an ID. And I don't know. There's there's some you know there's some way to do it in a in a way that you you can get that ID. You can start registering it. You can notify like software vendors without, and it all stays private so that people so it's not a public publicly known exploit at that point. Right. So I think I think what their point was in their article is they were trying to say that it doesn't appear to be that issue because it was that's a long that's an old issue and it should have been patched and if I guess what they try to do is reiterate that if you're going to be using software like this is to stay on top of your patches stay on top of updating things um, but they still never really confirmed or denied whether or not this was truly a an exploit on their software. So uh, I actually I found their statement. Uh, let me read it here. Um, it starts out, first and foremost, we at Apache were very shocked to learn that there was still anyone still using struts in production. <laughs> <laughs> did I have you there for a second? You look like you were... Uh... You did. You did. I was like, I'm looking at the... <clears throat> I didn't see that. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, that's, so the, actually, well, that's the... That, but that's the thing that Java developers across the world immediately thought was, holy crap, someone's still using struts? <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I used Struts, what, 20 years ago? 20 years ago, something like that? Well, you got to think someone really big like Equifax has a lot of technical debt. I mean, they, they, they're, they're probably still trying to advance and upgrade. Maybe this pushed a little more co- money into the coffers for, for upgrading their systems. We, but, uh, you know, the website they, they threw up that you could check, whatever uh-huh. that was, um, they said that was like some standard build, like unpatched WordPress thing. Really? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, see, it's just getting to the point where we just have to assume all of our information is public and try to do our best to try to protect ourselves. I mean, people have been talking about just locking down their credit. You know, just I think there's like services and things you can call that basically just turns off your access to your credit completely. And if you want to buy something on credit, you have to go and unlock it, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, 
But anyways, I was gonna I was gonna throw this back on you because uh, <laughs> how does this how does this affect um, your 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 feelings about using frameworks and third party tools like this and trying to keep them in up to date and um, well, especially when we talk about Salesforce and we talked about having a package manager. You're pro, I'm con on that subject, and I just think this is. This is more fuel for well, me to I throw don't, a con your way. I don't way. have the time or energy to get into your insanity right now, so we'll avoid that. But, but I, will, I mean, usually, I will say, well, first of all, these, these these third party frameworks and these tools they can introduce vulnerabilities in your system. It's code you didn't write, code you didn't control. No, but for, for, first of all, you have to be. It has to be said that like, who the hell is using Strut still? Use a modern. Don't, don't use twenty year old software. Um, but also, it's code. Yeah, it's code you didn't write because you didn't have to write it. Had you had to write all that stuff, what are you, you going to write your own open SSL implementation? I mean, where do you draw the line? Yeah, you've got to you've got to use you've got to build on operating systems and libraries and frameworks. Um, but you need to. I mean, the, you can so- solve ninety nine percent of security problems by just keeping your systems patched. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, so yeah, I mean, if you're whether it's your software, I mean, the great that's one great thing about using other people's well, software, especially from reputable projects, is that you benefit from constant ongoing uh, security maintenance. And I agree with that, but here's here's the rub in the Salesforce world, and that is for the most part, a lot of us in that are doing development are doing it as a consultancy, where we're part of a consultancy or part of a partner implementation partner, and our job is come in, build it, and leave. And then it's up to the admin to maintain that. And the admin has no clue. They have no clue that that there's the new vulnerability in this. Uh, let's just let's say say React. Let's say React has a hole in it, and and we used it, we created some custom UI, and it's all React, and they're using it. And all of a sudden, a few years later, there's a there's a a, a, a vulnerability. Okay, well, found. let me just stop you because if if that's all they have as an admin and you to maintain a custom software build, then they either shouldn't have that custom software build, or you should have sold them a maintenance contract. Or you just you, or you're just doing ongoing, you know, maintenance for them. I mean, software, especially in the age of the internet, is a is a living, breathing thing. There's no such thing as done ever. Okay. Well, how many how many maintenance contracts do you have? Because I'd love some recurring maintenance revenue. A lot. Start selling them. <laughs> shame on you for not selling them. I don't have any. Well, that's everyone wants me in and shame out. Shame on you. They're cheap. They want shame me in on and you. out. Well, you don't know how to sell them then. All right. You, you, just uh, just. Show them lists of of all these people that have uh, that have lost their businesses because they didn't keep their their systems patched. I find more than anything. It, I mean, John, they're paying maintenance for all kinds of things. They've got insurance. They've got service programs for probably their their just, plumbing and their landscaping and 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 their legal the fees. It My is point, it is the norm. No, I'm telling you, it's the norm. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> Okay, I've been doing uh, consulting work for about 10 years. And yes, maintenance packages have come up, but they've been geared towards uh, administration ma- maintenance, well, um, reporting and, and maintenance. And in your case, you're not, you're not papering most of these deals, right? I've yet to see someone pay me yeah. to be an, on, an ongoing support as a developer for some customization. I have, I mean, it, it's rare. That, I mean, there's some, so there's some well, companies that I have a really close relationship with and it's ongoing and we're always doing stuff. And yes, as updates need to be made, we make them. But for the most part, I mean, there are things I did two or three years ago that were highly custom and I've yet to hear anything back from those people. I mean, part part of having custom software built is, 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 is knowing how it affects your business and knowing what the long-term costs are and how you, how you maintain this thing. And if they're not buying that, that means that I mean, hopefully, what that means is you you did your job in educating them. You laid out the case and how this works, and they said, you know what? No, we don't want to do that. 
if that's the case, then that's fine. But I was about to let you off the hook because I don't think you, you know, you're not papering most of these, the deals you work on. No, I'm not. That's not your, even not. your job. That's other people that are doing it wrong. <laughs> well, thank you for that, for giving me an out. But, you know, I, I just don't, even taking me and you out of, as, uh, I don't know, I want to say experience, but I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. But there are plenty of people out there that I think are new to this or starting out development and, and, and starting out in consulting and, and developing this stuff or even creating new, new um, I don't know what you call them, becoming a new partner of Salesforce to do implementations. And I, don't, I just don't, I don't see that as a norm. I've rarely heard anyone talk about ongoing maintenance to software in that way. Unless, unless the company has a built-in team and we do this knowledge transfer and they maintain it from there, or unless it's like some application that we built for someone, like it, like we were helping build someone's product, those type of situations I have. But on the norm, when it comes to customizing and building custom stuff in Salesforce, it's rare that that subject actually comes up. But that's because someone's not bringing it up then. I mean, again, the, the customer's bringing you in as the expert. If the expert is not telling you all the different way, all the different things you need to be thinking about, then the expert is failing to do their job. Yeah, but you got to remember that the people we're interacting with are not IT. They're not IS, IT. They're typically the sales manager, the CEO, the CFO, the CIO. Well, maybe not even it's, the, it's your, I don't CIO. care. It's your job to find the right what I'm saying person is, to talk to. You, be, you need to say, listen, uh, I need to talk to your CIO. And if you have a CSO, for example, they'd probably want to know. Um, I, I need to shadow you and, and, and pick up these tips because... I'm just saying, with so, all the experience someone I've needs gotten, to educate no them. No one's ever said, you know what? As an architect, we really need to think about this, and we need really need to talk about how we're gonna. But you do that. I heard you on the phone earlier. You you're great at this stuff. <laughs> I'm forward thinking in that. I, I guess what I sh- I guess what I should say is that it's rarely that it's rare that I take some third party technology and shoehorn it into Salesforce. It's rare that I take and build out a, a, a React application. Usually, everything I'm doing is is native. Like I'm trying to do it natively. Um, there are a few occasions where I build um, custom integration console applications that will run on a server somewhere. Um, the only time I hear back from those guys is if we have an issue, but I don't keep track of all the vulnerabilities in the .NET framework that I should, you know, ping everyone and say, hey, update, update. In fact, the, uh, most recently, I, I had to rely on people calling me and saying, hey, my integration's broken. And we go on, oh, yeah, I got to update, update that to support TLS, the new t- <laughs> the, because of the TLS vulnerability. Um, that's a, that's a great opportunity to say, you know, and by the way, I mean, if you're not, if you guys aren't staying on top of this, then you're constantly leaving yourself open to vulnerabilities. You know, I, I think, something, there's something I can help you with. I do. And I, I think what's happening is that no one's really thinking about this. I mean, again, we're talking about business users. They the don't know what working. to think. They don't know to think about that. That's what I'm saying. If you're talking about like a small company that they don't have a sophisticated IT operation, it, they're it not going to know. It could just be that the people are all gone that were there on the project and originally built and were originally part of building that. And then they're all gone and now someone else has inherited and now we're. And we're stuck with this thing and no one knows what to do with it. And no one knows if it's updated. No one knows if it needs to be updated. And there's a, there's a lot of situations here that I think we, we can say that happened, whether right or wrong, whether someone should have done something or not. I think there's a lot of this kind of stuff out oh, there. Oh, there absolutely is. Because every, a lot of people are doing it wrong. You know, if, if the team... Jeremy, like, you should and, open and up you, a school no, and teach you, us all how to do it right. In your example... We need your wisdom. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> you just have to talk to people. It's, you know, it's, if first of all, if you're not doing that, you're leaving money on the table. Second of all, you're doing a disservice to clients. I, I, I agree with your points. You know, I mean, you need to... if. You need to let them know what the security concerns are and what the what maintenance is like on software that it's because it's not air gapped from the internet. I mean, 
just super important that, that they I also think I think people think of Salesforce and they talk about they think about customizing developing on it and they kind of feel like it's this self-contained shell that's that's already got that built into the platform it, and, and it's covered it kind of is because even even if you're you know programming apex and visual force in Salesforce you're kind of just you're still just customizing someone else's system at that point in a way depending on how you want to think about it right I mean yeah. it's, and it's Salesforce's job Although I'm sure they disclaim this in, again in the in the agreement, that it's it's their job to make sure that you know their system is you know secure, and that all your customizations you've done to it, assuming you didn't break the rules and go outside the lines, mm-hmm. that everything that's within bounds you know is is secure. You shouldn't be able to like, um, I don't know, open up some security hole or something in Salesforce just just with Apex, right? Which is why we have things like locker service. Now there's still all kinds of things that developers do and I see some of this sometimes to create security problems. Yes. Um I mean there's especially when you start talking about, you know, uh, sites and public accessibility even if it's authenticated. I mean there's just so many ways you can open up security holes to your org's data. I mean, I don't. I don't mean like core to the Salesforce platform. I mean just to like to your org's data. If you don't know what you're doing, yeah. I mean, you could modify the the profile attached to a public website, and all of a sudden it has access to things. And if you know the right URL hack, or you know you you can you know the API, you can sometimes get access to that information. Yeah, I mean, there's really there's really probably all manner of things. So I don't want to I don't want to make it seem like we you and I have like this list of here's the four things. And as long as you oh. do those, you're good. <laughs> but I mean, other things like you know not using um the the sharing settings on Apex classes correctly and um. I mean, just look at look at the look at the any of the the, the top OWASP things. Just just with web security and just the way that, uh, you know, d- domain protection and um, and cross site scripting and things like that. All that's you know all those types of uh, hacks and vectors and things. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. That if you don't know what you're doing, um, you can get yourself into trouble. And it really kind of at that point has nothing to do with Salesforce. It's not their fault. That's not they can't protect you from from that. Only you can. Which is why you should hire people that know what they're doing. <laughs> Which is also why you know the, the guys that are out there that are supposedly good and, and and you know charging higher rates for it. That's partly how they should be selling themselves. That's true. I mean, you know, I mean, versus someone that, versus someone that, that went just... to a, a code boot camp for for three months and is now programming <laughs> professionally. We we should talk about that sometime though. I don't. I don't want to knock people trying to learn and no, try, no, no, to, no. try to get into development. I mean that that's a good thing. No, I'm not. I guess I what I well, knocking people for don't for for not knowing what they don't know and for not even trying to know and, and knocking I guess people for hiring because someone knows the syntax of a language. Yet there's you know this everything again under the iceberg that they don't know about at all and they can get you in all kinds of trouble, whether it's security or just maintenance or or coding your company into a into a hole yeah. and so many other things but uh, uh, what i meant was um the all this news about the 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 coding boot camps how like that whole industry is you know about the tank and whatever mm. i don't know uh another day yeah i i think more than anything we're just we're going to be at least i am going to be a little more sensitive to security and that's probably going to be evident in a lot of my conversations but start selling maintenance man <sighs> it's a uh, it's a value-added package. You're, you're, you're saving them money by preventing massive Well, like you said, I didn't, I didn't pay and, for the deal, so I don't get yeah, any of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm responsible for maintaining oh. it. See, don't, see, don't get, see, me, this, don't get this me started all to, on all these Salesforce consultants flow. that have no idea what this, they're this doing. This whole thing has to flow. Like, like yeah, how, how do I get paid for maintaining someone else's software when I'm not getting, you know, what? Do I, I charge five minutes of my time to go and update a patch? No, 
that can't be it for right. me having to keep track of all this. Yeah. I mean, I, th- that's a conversation I want to get into a little bit later because it kind of comes into something I want to talk about. But anyways, that's security. That's uh, that's Equifax. <laughs> yep, security is a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. And it can destroy your company. Even when you're a massive company that's basically propped up by Congress, it can still tank your company. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Jeremy? Yep. Are you looking at things with a beginner's mind? Probably. Sometimes I try to. Because Benioff wants you to look at things from a beginner's mind. Or, or... <laughs> Soshin. Or what? Soshin. What's that? It's beginner's mind, I learned. Oh, it's, so is this some faux Buddhist thing or some... You it's know, not a faux. Some quasi-Japanese Soshin thing. is a word from Zen Buddhism, God, which means beginner's mind. It refers to having an attitude of openness, eagerness, and lack of preconceptions uh, uh, when studying a subject, even when studying at an advanced level, just as a beginner in that subject would. The term is especially used in study in the study of Zen Buddhism and Japanese martial arts. So let me ask you this. Where did Benioff learn this word? Studying Zen Buddha or studying martial arts? I'm sure he has like some Buddhism consultant. That <laughs> what are you talking about? He has the monks, just, remember? Yeah. At Dreamforce. Oh, that and also, um, what was it? Uh, I just think it's funny <laughs> picturing Benioff doing uh, jujitsu or something. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> no, and um, do you watch Silicon Valley? You don't, do you? I know you keep telling me I need to. Because uh, the I guy, don't. Gavin Belson, he's got a... Is it a Buddhism consultant that he has? He's got some kind of like mindfulness consultant that's always in his office. It's basically blowing <laughs> smoke up his butt the whole time. I, I still got to see that because every time you describe oh, one great. of the episodes, I'm like, uh, it you can't hilarious. not watch that show. Yeah. If you have anything to do with tech at all, you cannot want, you cannot not watch that show. Yeah, yeah. So, that, so uh, Benioff was quoted has has been using that that term beginner's mind. So, for those of you going to Dreamforce, I'm sure you hear a lot about beginner's mind. That <laughs> seems to be the word of the year, or the word of the month, or the word of of late. That's my uh, one. He's always got to coin some phrase and and kind of market around that's that my phrase. One thousand seven hundred fifty second reason why I'm glad I'm not going to Dreamforce. <laughs> yeah. So he was he was on Forbes as uh, one hundred greatest to. business minds. Um, I, he's got to get someone to take better pictures of him. He always looks like he's like squinting at the camera because he just farted or something. I don't, I just can't get that picture out of my head. Every picture of I him. I mean, who's to this, say that's not what he's happened? Got this sly <laughs> look at the corner of his eye like he just farted. I, I don't know. It's you know, just, like, because they, they tend to use these same photos, but the best one of him where it's a, is a profile shot and like the lights in him in a, in a cool way. The worst photo that's out there of him right now was this about a year ago when some, some magazine did like a cover story on him mm-hmm. and he was turned kind of to an angle like this. Uh-huh. And he's looking at the camera with this, he's got this evil grin. I'm like, dude, the evil grin look is really not well, something you want to go for. that's what we're dealing with here. Let me message you this article so you can see the picture that they use and you can tell me if this is similar to what you're talking about. I wonder if I Google Benioff evil grin if it comes up. Now see, you know, you Google Benioff and all the stuff about his cousin comes up, the Game of Thrones guy. <laughs> All right, do you see that picture? Oh, no. Hang on. Okay, it's like that one, except yeah. this one's horrible. Yeah. No, it's, there's another one that's just like that. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, uh, he's getting real squinty these days, isn't he? I, I guess. I don't it's know. Like he's, it's, can he even see out of it? It's like he can hardly even see. Well, I don't know. I mean, some people, when they smile, their eyes do weird things. Like me, when I smile like for a picture, too. like yeah. my well, left sure. eye, yeah. my left eye, I think, like, closes more than my right. And my son has that too, we oh, noticed. You get like one eye that's dominant. I don't know. Like I call it my lazy eye, my lazy picture eye. Anyway. But yeah, I mean I mean there's really not much to tell. I mean, he kind of speaks he kind of speaks like a Peter Coffey in, in that, where he's like, you know, beginner's mind and robotics and genetics and future, future, future type stuff. I mean, it's all fluff to me. Yeah. It's not reality. 
I wish I could just say a bunch of shit and people give me an award, but um, I'm not worth five billion. So no. <clears throat> uh, well, let's. Do you want to talk about the Apple and stuff? We didn't. We really haven't talked about that much. Oh yeah, let's let's get to that. Um, I mean, I'm you gonna, were bitching earlier a little bit about your MacBook Pro, but yeah, I was, I was just gonna I was gonna say before you cut me off earlier. I mean, like before we started the podcast, you're like, "That's podcast material. You can't talk to me." Yeah. <laughs> can't spoil I haven't seen seen Jeremy in like a whole week John and, and I do not do pre-shows we don't even know what each of us is going to talk about which is probably may not be even be a good idea because we're not prepared but we that's because that's how we kind of like that's like how we catch the other person yeah, but sometimes fresh. it means I can't talk to you like I'm sitting here in the office across from you and I can't say anything to you I just gotta look at yeah. stare into your eyes yep. longingly yeah. wanting to talk to you I was busy, so I, I normally when when these events happen, you know we super we, creepy. <laughs> normally, when these things happen, we hold up somewhere with a beer and our computers and watch the show together. And we haven't done that in like four years. No, we did it last time. Where we absolutely did. I think we did it at like the Grail or something, yeah. Growler, some one of those places. We did it. Yeah. Um, okay, did it, but watch this. <laughs> 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 Uh, but no, that didn't happen. I was working, and um, I, I I still have not seen the the videos. I still have not seen the keynote. I've well, have I've, you decided that you're not getting the iPhone 10 or the eight? Because I'm about to tell you. Because I'm so jaded by this MacBook. Well, isn't that kind of orthogonal from the iPhone? Can not you not really. separate at, these? at this point. It's, at this point, I'm done with the new shiny. At this point, I'm like, you know what? My phone still works. My watch still works. My iPad still works. I have this this <clears> this MacBook Pro that I spent a ton of money on and i'm not using using 250 dollars worth of that touch bar that, that what was it 400 dollars that it added the price I to think so i'm not even using that thing i mean you know what's funny though and i'm like man i want my function keys back but i wonder if i was it if i went back to a normal keyboard if there would be things about this that i would miss you know i try i force myself to try to use the touch bar but the only time it works for me is if i'm if like when i was traveling i tried to use it a few times and it was kind of convenient when my hands were on the laptop keyboard. But since most of the time I have like a monitor or my own keyboard set up and my own mouse separate from that in Bluetooth, I don't even get to use it. Yeah. <clears throat> at, at best, I'm reaching across to put my fingerprint on the scanner, which I do like. I just wish it was like somewhere on the outer shell. Right. So that even if it's closed, I can still use it. But other than that, I mean... I think the only thing I've grown to like is the volume and brightness sliders. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much it. That, that's all I use it for. I and mean, I'm looking at what's on here. So I've got Evernote open and I'm looking at what's on the touch bar. I've got, I've got a, you know, the, the, the soft escape key, mm-hmm. which just is like staring at me and just laughing at me. Yeah. Then I've got an emoji button. Oh, nice. I yeah. know. It's like, really? I mean, do people, I mean, I guess they do. Yeah. Click. This is the worst way to browse through emojis. I'd rather do it on my screen. Yeah. Um, and then I've got, I guess it's an autocorrect. So I'm on the word Apple and I can choose between app apparently and API. It's just, I don't know. This is, I, I just. Yeah, I mean, I, the other factor is just everything. Maybe I'm just, old, though. Maybe I'm just old. and I'm I don't just, think so. I think, I think, I don't think it's that at all. I mean, I still want newer, better, faster technology. It's just that I'm, I'm paying a premium for the Apple stuff because I like the build. I like the quality of a lot of it. Usually, well, it is, usually. It, I mean, it is the MacBook better. Pro, this one is, is a bit more glitchier than it should be for a freaking $3,000 computer. My only real complaint, I guess, about this computer, I mean, the the, the touch bar is what it is, right? I mean, I mm-hmm. guess I would rather have a regular keyboard. But for what it is, it seems to work okay. I don't, and it doesn't really ever cause me problems. I mean, maybe once in every four or five months, it might, like, is there ever, I don't even know, does it, ever, does it like lock up or kind of- I've had the touch bar lock weird? up. I've had my screen lock up. I've had it, I've had apps just quit 
which I mean could, may or may not be because of it, but at, like apps that never did qu- crash before were crashing on here. Um, it, it seemed to relate. Like I would notice a crash, and then I'd notice my touch bar is not responding, mm. and I have to restart and those yeah. kind of things. Right. Um, so I look. I don't know if I'm lucky, Rob. I don't have that. My only complaint really is, and there's things I like about the new keyboard, just in terms of how like. Um, oh, the travel. I, I like the travel yeah. being at low and everything. I don't, but it's still hard for me to find the arrow keys correctly, and. And then, like my space bar, the right side of my space bar, I tend to have problems with it. It'll just like sometimes kind of stop working out. I'll, I'll notice, I'll be watching it. And I'm like, my words are running together because the space is not, mm. it's not uh, registering. <clears throat> you haven't had that with mine, but I don't know. I, I, ultimately, I can't say that I'm 100% happy with it. Not like, no. you know, my last mm. MacBook where I was really happy with it, really enjoyed using it. Uh, even spent the time to add an SSD to extend the life of it before I bought a new one. I mean, I really hung on to that. I had every reason to upgrade it, but I, I kept it because I still enjoyed using it. That was it. two computers ago, right? Uh, yep. Yeah, it was. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, and the then screen, I getting, I mean, and then I started uh, getting into the cycle where I was buying new stuff. I was like, all right, let's get the new shiny. Let's get the new shiny. Yeah. Why not? I'm a professional at this. I'm a professional software developer. I should be able to get new shiny well, toys. I don't think getting. Do my I don't job. think you getting a new computer every three to four years is is qualifies as the new shiny. It's good for my soul, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I use these things day in and day out. So having something that performs a little bit faster, is a little bit more productive, um, off, you know, like the keyboard I like, the, the things we mentioned like that, it's worth it for me to invest a little bit to get that versus just buying a, a brick of a Windows machine that could power a game, but it's like heavy as crap and, and fans going all over the place. I mean, I, I enjoy that this is really silent. I enjoy the keyboard. I enjoy the screen. Yeah, the screen's great. The, the resolution on the screen. Um, so the things I enjoy about it, and there's things that I'm willing to upgrade for and willing to pay for. But as of late, everything just seems like small incremental improvements, yet asking large amounts of increased dollars yep. for it. Yeah, Like this should not have been a $400 price increase for this damn touch bar. It's too experimental. It's expensive. And maybe it's probably. my bad for, for buying into it. I should have just bought one without it. Yeah. But you couldn't unless you wanted a lesser computer. That's true. So that's that's a design choice. That's a very opinionated design choice that, you know, you just agree you disagree with Apple on. They think yeah. that's the best and only way to work if you want, you know, the top of the line and and you disagree. Yeah. So I mean that kind of factored into my decision. I mean, I I kind of knew that no matter what they announced, I was probably not gonna get it. I just don't have the appetite. Um so I mean I'm, I may next year upgrade a bunch of my devices, but I'm not I'm not entirely positive. So, I might wait another year before uh, I do that. Well, what do you think of the iPhone 10? I like the idea. I like the concept of it. There are things I don't like about it. I don't like that that kind of the notch the notch at the top. I mean I think they could have spent a little more time and gotten rid of that notch, especially since you can see that that icons end up behind that notch. Like they end up getting cut off by that notch in the screen. Like it's not. It's not like that notch is reserved space in the screen. Everything renders behind it. It's just there shouldn't be anything behind there. So when it's doing its animations, you can see how it goes behind it and, and then scales correctly. So if, if developers <clears throat> are doing their, their job right, you shouldn't have any you shouldn't have anything, you know, that touches or goes behind that notch that's actually needed or is like an affordance or anything, right? Yeah, but you have games that are full screen and they, know, well, they even, take over that whole thing and now you've got this notch in the middle of your game. And I didn't I didn't see this. I didn't notice it, but I read um that when whatever game company did their demo, uh-huh. um there were points when like something like some icon was behind the notch. Yeah. So I I don't know. I think that was a fail in terms of that notch. I 
I do too. I don't they know should have just, just reserved that space and and you know kept the screen to reasonable or just, dimensions, or just it maybe made the screen not go up that high. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. just like reserve that top space and just black it I mean, out. Is or that something. that big of a deal? Yeah, I don't know why they did that. Here's here's my big problem with this phone, the iPhone 10, and this is why I don't know what I'm going to do because you know I'm on this plan with Apple where I can just give them this phone back mm-hmm. and they'll give me either the eight or the ten, whichever one I want. Right. <clears throat> um. But I don't know what to do. And, and the thing that really gets me about this iPhone 10 is, you know, it's a taller screen than the than the plus. Yeah. And and logically, there's more points. And there's more in the in the vertical axis. There's more mm-hmm. points. Um, width wise, it's a little bit less wide than the plus, but way but quite a bit wider than the than the standard, the A7 or eight form yeah. factor. However, there's actually much less um, logical, like the the lot the number of points on the on the width axis of the the yeah the, the horizontal axis mm-hmm. is the same as the non plus. So is it s- stretching? Yeah, yeah. It's just I mean it's uh, I don't know if it's stretching or not. It's just um or the dot pitch is different maybe. But yeah, yeah. It's got the same. It's the same you know points wide as the not as the non plus. So whatever the non plus, what's that called? The regular. You know whatever the iPhone eight. Mm-hmm. Can fit in width wise. You're going to get the exact same thing on the on the ten, right? Width wise, yeah. yeah. Which and that's the dimension that I care about more. I actually don't. I mean, this the the screen on my iPhone. What is the seven plus? It's already tall enough. I mean, I don't need more in that direction. And in fact, if yeah. you watch a movie and you turn your phone horizontal, isn't it already having to wear the bars? If you're like watching a typical like sixteen by nine movie, they're they're on the they're on the edges. If, on the if, edges? You, if you turn it horizontally, then they're on the edges. Yeah. So you have bars over here. Well, not on mine. I don't know about yours because yours is bigger than mine. I don't know what the aspect ratio is on yours. Yeah, on mine, I don't get any bars when I flip it horizontally. But it just seems like you know that that width. Um, real estate is is what's most valuable, and that's what they've cut out of this. And I just I don't know why. I don't understand why they did that. Yeah, I mean, what do you, it's got wireless charging, right? What do you think about that? I don't know. I guess that's nice. I mean, now I'm going to have this platform sitting on my counter. Collecting dust. Yeah. And yeah. It's, people are going to spill stuff on it. And, and then you're going to have to carry another wireless adapter around with you. Yeah, I'm supposed to put that thing in my suitcase. Yeah, I guess these things all still have lightning. Or uh, is it would it be lightning? Yeah, tracks? I guess you could just default to that when you travel. Oh, you don't have to do the wireless charging, right? Yeah, I guess not. And I think, in fact, I don't think it doesn't come with a wireless charger, does it? Well, for now. Okay. And then eventually there'll be, there'll be no ports on there. <laughs> yeah. And you'll have to have wireless everything, wireless headphones, wireless charging, everything. They, they, they're, it's going to be the most courageous thing they've ever done. That's right. <laughs> Take away all ports. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the Apple TV was kind of a letdown. I mean, okay, it's 4K now. Woohoo. It's, it's a, I think someone said it's basically the same processor and everything of an iPad Pro, so it's basically an iPad Pro. You know, I just I don't follow the Apple TV because I don't have any iTunes content that I've bought. And, and it's so much more expensive and less capable still yeah. to this day than its competitors that I have zero interest in. And Apple a lot of TV. people said if you have a 4K TV, chances are it's a smart TV, and they've already got 4K versions of things like Netflix and YouTube and yeah. you know whatever streaming service you're using. So just use the apps on the TV yep. and don't buy this, basically. Yeah. I mean, I still I still prefer the my Mac Mini or just really any computer as your home mm-hmm. theater because they can... Now, the thing that... Again, there's 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 no one solution, which is just so frustrating, but... Like one thing that I can't do well with, you can't do well with a computer is I still don't think, like when you watch Netflix with the browser, I don't believe, unless they've fixed this, 
um, that there's any way to get like, f- you know, 5.1 audio. It's only two channel through, mm-hmm. the, through the browser. So for that, I flip over to my um, Roku and I watch Netflix through the Roku. It works well. The Roku is a pretty nice box. Although there's, I mean, I've got problems with the Roku too. Like when I'm playing Plex stuff, mm-hmm. um, this is so weird. It'll play Dolby Digital Plus or what's also got enhanced Dolby Digital just fine. But any stuff that's regular Dolby, Dolby Digital, it, I just get no audio whatsoever. So I have to switch back to my Mac Mini and use the Plex client on it to watch things that are in Dolby Digital. So it's just, I don't know. There's Sounds like first world problems. Jeremy. It's just all kinds of stuff. And also <laughs> like um, DTS, it's something that's DTS on the on the Roku, the 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 audio sync gets oh, yeah. is really out. And it's just like, I don't know. I was thinking about looking at the latest, was the Apple or uh, Amazon's, is it Fire, Fire TV or whatever? The Fire Stick or is it a Fire TV? I think they still have both, right? I don't know. I haven't kept up. The only thing that, that, that I even remotely thought about getting is the new watch just because it has the the cellular cellular capability which means i could kind of use it away from my my phone a little bit more i have found like when i first got the watch i was like yeah i couldn't really recommend it i was like yeah it's it's okay it's convenient but i found that it, it's it's become more and more convenient to me to where the point i'm i'm more likely to leave my phone sitting on my desk and walk away whereas before i'd be like where's my phone where's my phone i got to have it I'm less. I'm more detached from my phone than ever because I've got the watch, and I can just easily glance to see if there's a message waiting for me. If it's something I have to worry about, especially if I'm taking like a little lunch break, I don't. I don't have to have my phone like right there in my face. I can just if something comes in, I can look at it and say yeah, I could ignore that. Yeah, it's not urgent. It's not like something's really trying to get a hold of me or anything. Um, I like the. I like when I'm traveling and I get the directions and it's it's on the watch. It's much. My hand's still on the steering wheel, and I can take a glance and see. Okay, I've got a turn coming up. Are you still on the Series Zero, the original one, or whatever? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Okay, me too. And this is, it's so slow. <clears throat> I mean, I think even the Series 1 was a big speed improvement over the Zero, but now they're up to three, right? Uh, yes, it's three. Three? Mm-hmm. three or so four. It's the, basically, it's three. Yeah, three. So it's, which is the fourth watch. Yeah, which, what, yeah it's, it's they did, version three on iOS, on watch OS 4. Yeah. That's what confuses me every time. But to be clear, the Series 3 is the fourth because they didn't, the original Apple Watch, they didn't call it Series anything. So people call that Series Zero now just to give mm-hmm. it a name. But that's still what I'm on it. But you know, the thing is, I'm, I, I, first of all, I think to myself, the problem with the Series Zero, it's, it's so slow to any, any I, don't, I don't use any apps on it because they're still, even even after that big update they did to it, with, I think with Watch OS 2, yeah. um, which made it faster, it's still too slow. And then also, I mean, even if you had this, the Series 3, which is much faster, the problem is the apps still don't do enough for me. It's not, the apps are not useful enough on the watch yet for me to want to go out and upgrade or, you know, get rid of this and get a Series 3. Well, I, th- I think I think that's true because they were pretty much tethered to the phone, and now you can have you. It's, I mean, it's still going to be tethered, but now when you're away from your phone, it has a little bit more capability. It can actually communicate with a network, and so I think about you know. But that's not what is currently stopping my watch apps from being useful. Well, isn't it? Because I no, because I always have my phone with me. I mean, because I don't know. Let's say you have a a running app and you're you're going for a jog you can leave your watch you can leave your phone at home and you can just have your watch and yeah, it's but, still tracking but and doing uh, GPS other than me and, not having to carry my phone that app is still these apps are not very good well yeah i mean you're not going to get like real work done but i i don't really do real work on my phone either i mean i i, I thought man I, i'll love this with podcasts because i'll be able to control podcasts and i just i hate controlling a podcast through this phone i still i'll pull the phone out of my pocket and yeah. you know skip to the next episode or whatever i need to do i, I still see it as kind of like a, a a convenience device. I still see it as, as something that 
that keeps me from having to have my phone in my face all the time. And I mean, that's the one thing I do enjoy about it is that I can, I don't have to have that damn phone in my face, which would, and, and what, by, by that, I mean, I check a notification then all of a sudden I see, oh, there's like three new notifications on Twitter and there's, there's three new emails here. And then I start, before I know it, I'm down the rabbit hole and I'm, I'm interacting with my phone more and more. So you have to watch with my watch. I just, I look at the notification, I dismiss it and then I move on. So I'm that's not, what, that's what you do with all my texts. You just dismiss. That's why you don't ever respond to me. Oh yeah. I you're just you dismissing them. dismissal yeah. on my, on yeah. my watch. <laughs> Instant dismiss. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, there was that was I think that was a weird Apple event. I mean, I don't even know if I'm going to do anything. I'm guess if I, I, should I should I try the 10? Again, I can I mean, if you got a plan that says you can try it and then switch it out, I mean, what's, yeah. what's the I mean, harm? my so my cuz I have a, there's I basically leased this. I'm on it's basically like a lease, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so my whatever my payment is, like let's I don't even know what it is. I think it's 45 for this. Um with the 10 it might go up to like 50 or 55 bucks. It'll go up a little bit just cuz it's a more expensive phone. Right. But I can, yeah, it's, I think it's easy for me to do that. I just, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm almost just out of morbid curiosity. I'm like, I want to see how annoying this phone is. <laughs> well, maybe I do, I'll I like do it. You know? see, I do kind of want to see it hands-on. So if you get one, I, I want to play with it. But, uh, but I mean, losing width, that's, that's what bothers me. <laughs> you might not notice it. Someone out there saying that's what she said. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was going to say it. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that's Apple. That is Apple. So uh, here's a, here's a throwaway topic. Okay. Uh, Slack is uh, raising more money. Raised two hundred fifty million. I mean, how much have they and raised? They're at five Sean? billion valuation. Do you think this is a bubble? I, I don't. I, I I don't know where they go from here. How do they? What wait? What is their valuation? Five billion. Five billion. Yeah. So that's like you know, on the order of like a tenth of the size of value of Salesforce. Yeah. I mean, this says it was previously valued at three point eight billion, so it went up. Quite a bit, quite a few billions. I'm just I'm up. skeptical that chat, a chat company, is worth five billion. And the reason is because it's not that hard to for a competitor to be in that game. In fact, I mean, as soon as I mean, and I already feel like Slack is kind of peaking in this regard. But as soon as they're not like the cool kid on the block anymore, like there's tons of op. There's you know you've got what is it Hip Chat and there's there's other ones that are I think pretty good. Is, is Slack public yet? I don't think so because think no, so. no, because they just raised money. Yeah, so. that's right. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think that's their next play. I mean, I think next year, especially since this year, in terms of tech IPOs, there hasn't really been much going on. So I think next year people are going to be really hungry for a tech IPO, and Slack might be might be it. Now, whether or not it turns out to be a good IPO, meaning long term, it makes money and all that kind of stuff, I'm not sure. But I mean, what's what's a good long term plan for Slack? Slack. I know that's the thing. I'm not sure. I mean, what what makes them sticky? What makes them? Um, what raises the the threshold to compete with them? Is it? I guess it would just be keep um, keep developing these enterprise integrations mm-hmm. and get you know get a lot of big companies hooked on you and and somehow be really sticky. Yeah, I mean that's I think that's why Salesforce has done well because it's 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 you know again it's the Roach Motel. They're they're which is a a more or less nice way of saying they're they're really sticky. Right. I mean, aren't Roach Motels literally sticky? Or like a sticky trap. It's a sticky trap. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you put one foot on it, you're stuck. <laughs> your only option then is to chew your foot off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably true in so many cases. So many metaphors that could so possibly many. go wrong here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of Apple, this is another one on my list that's a throwaway. Uh, the, the new High Sierra 
if you have one of those fancy uh, hybrid fusion drives, it's not going to work. Yeah. They remove support for that. Um, no, 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 not. You're talking about the, the new file system. Yeah. High Sierra will work. Yeah. Just the, what's the name of the new file system? Um, AF. Yeah, it's like HF. It's. No, I thought it was something completely different. AFP? Yeah, APFS, sorry. APFS. HFS is the, is the original right. format, yeah. No, I'm excited about AF, APFS. Whatever the the only problem is, is is for beta testers who tested it, um, they actually have to do like all these hoops they have to jump through to get it back. I'd probably just reformat it and reinstall Apple from, or the OS from Oh, so scratch. during beta, it would, it, would, it would convert your Fusion Drive to APFS? Yeah, apparently through beta, it was available, but mm-hmm. I, I, guess they had, I guess they found some issues with it through the beta process, and so they basically... They're basically turning it off or saying that you're not going to be able to use that. Yeah. That file system. I mean, I'm not John Syracuse, but I've looked at the kind of the features of APFS and it looks really nice. I haven't had a chance to catch up on it. I am excited. It's weird. I'm excited to have a a refresh, even though this is a fairly minor update. Haven't they all been minor though? That's kind of the beauty of OS X these days. Yeah, I guess that is. And I think that's kind of what I'm thinking is, is... you know, for a while there, I was really into like the big changes. I really wanted to see some really new UI stuff, but this one's kind of more just like a an iteration on what they have, and I'm kind of happy about it. It's it's odd. Like I thought I would be kind of disappointed. Oh, it does It's not this fancy new thing, but I'm actually happy. I'm Let me ask you this. I'm excited. Just on OS 10, you know, given that we're kind of years into this effect, I think the translucency. Mm-hmm. Do you find that as a useful concept? Um, I mean, do you see it? Do you find it useful that kind of through the title bar, you can kind of see where the content is behind it, or there might be some content there on on another app behind it? It's not useful in a functional way, but just from like a visually appealing, I do kind of like it. If it's I have kind the right of got, it's kind of like got a, got a just from a, a a nerdy like, oh, that's that's cool that they can do that, yeah. right? That's well, kind of cool. Your, my terminal window is is trans translucent like, but that. it's it's not translucent enough to be useful. That's the problem. Unless, well, I mean, I, I mean, there really isn't any use. I mean, it, you, it's not like you can see behind it or see what's there. Or, or it, it, there really, it's just more of a design. It's an aesthetic. Or like when you're scrolling through a web page, like up in the Chrome, doesn't it? Um, now, see Chrome, the browser Chrome doesn't do it, but I'm, I'm sure Safari does. I think you see the content once it gets above the, oh, yeah. the Chrome. You can kind of see it in the background. That just that's not useful to me. It can be. It can be to see that there's something above the fold, that there's some, or not above the fold, but above the 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 top. I of just the scrolled past it. I know there's content there. <laughs> I scrolled it up there for a reason because I don't want to see it. Well, it's because you're super <laughs> smart, Jeremy. Not everyone's as smart, oh, and they need visual uh, indicators yeah, that there's something more up there that they can scroll to. That's what it is. I'll have to clip that. Let's see. Top Mark, or bottom? Marker. Jeremy's super smart. Okay. Um, so we got a. Do we? Oh, let me think of what else I have here. Um, right, let me let me keep some music here. Uh, so, is this scary music? Let's see. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Co- the the gerbil or that? that. I, I don't know. That's my scary music for CoffeeScript is back. Did you see this? No. I guess uh, they've been announcing CoffeeScript too. Um, I don't even know what's different in it, but. I went through a CoffeeScript phase. Did you ever get into CoffeeScript? Uh, I started to, and, and then I lost I interest. I will tell you, when I have to go back to a code base that was from my CoffeeScript phase, it's like it's like going back through photos when you're in like you know the awkward like twelve uh, year old phase, and when you're twelve and you like I don't know, you got it, you were into like you had a rat tail, or you just <laughs> were some you know some you were into something horrible. Um, that's what it's like. Um, uh, what were those the Jinkos? Is that what they were? Jinkos? Are those pants? Yeah, those pants. Yeah. That I call them the Gumby pants. The yeah. ones that are like oh, so yeah, wide. Yeah. And then um, also like the, the what were they? Zo- yeah, the, you're right. They were. And then also, do you remember like Zubas? And there was a, uh, did you ever have any Z Cavaricis? No. Really? 
I was gosh. not fashionable. I didn't have any of this crap. I just, I just remember it and thinking. Did, did you ever, did you ever have a pair of British Knights? <laughs> Some BKs? I, I did at one point. <laughs> uh, I had a pair that had this horrible faux gold chain on them. Oh my God. You can still buy Jinkos. <laughs> <laughs> 50% off. <laughs> oh, now we know what to get you for Christmas, John. Ooh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in it. Let's do this. <laughs> people are going to want to see photos. Uh, oh, people are putting their dogs in there. That's funny. But anyway, what, you know, CoffeeScript, um, there's things that are nice about it. You know, there's no curly brackets. There's no... Uh, there's no semicolons, but because of that, and maybe maybe this has been fixed, but from what I remember is sometimes you would have to, uh, there were certain situations, like let's say you you were wrapping a line. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say you, you had a, a, you were chaining some method calls together. Let's say you're using like the builder pattern. So like something, you're calling some method and then it's return value. You're calling dot and then a method call right. and then dot and a method call on that. Let's say you ran a line space. So you wrapped you wrapped right. it down, so you have on the new line you have a dot and method call, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't handle that syntax. You had to put the dot on the line before, which really is annoying. Like, so there's oh. there's just things because it had such a cruft-free syntax. It, it actually you got in a situation where the compiler couldn't tell what you were trying to do. Yeah, and so you kind of had to do ugly things like that. I mean, I appreciate the you know the lack of of having to do that. It, it, it seemed cleaner. It seemed nicer. It seemed more efficient. Yeah, but I think just like anything else, you lose context. You know, not only for the compiler, but for you as the reader. I mean, I, I feel like that can introduce so many different bugs. And it's interesting that TypeScript didn't go down that route. They didn't. They didn't really change the the tokenization of yeah. JavaScript, right? Not really. I mean, like on methods, you don't have to like you can declare a method right on a class, mm-hmm. and you don't have to have the word function. That it's not yeah. required. But but they didn't. You know, you still have to use semicolons. You still have to use um, curly brackets. So they didn't try to get rid of those. I just think that causes, it's cool in a way. It's almost like, it, you know, it's not surprisingly, it reminds me of Ruby a little bit because, you know, I think it was the Ruby guys that actually uh, created Java, or CoffeeScript originally. But Ruby just doesn't have quite enough syntax for me. And, and it's got, and also just the way they, the way those guys design their APIs, mm-hmm. they just, they try, everything has to be so magical. It's like, I feel like that's an easy trap to fall into when you're building some kind of framework or things like that. Is you, you want to you want to make it easier, so you want to yeah wanna, you want to make it so clever. And I really yeah. don't want my programming language to. I don't know. I want it to look like somewhat like a programming language. <laughs> you know, I mean, some of these things, some of this Ruby stuff, it just they make it where it, you, you're almost just writing a sentence. But it's well, so but, how do you, how do you but, reconcile that with frameworks? Because I, I mean, essentially, a framework is is almost that you get a method call that does a bunch of crap for you, and you're like, I'm just going to call this method one line, boom, done. Yeah, but I can look and see what that method does, and it's in a language that I understand. That's not magic, you know. I mean, Fair Ruby enough. has, you know, it's just, and it's not really a framework. That's actually not a great kind of comparison, really. I mean, no, because, it's more so the comparison of the, the terms of magic. So the things that they do for you, when you make a statement, it does a bunch of stuff for you and abstracts you from from all the details yeah, of that. And just all, I think it's also with Ruby, just all the monkey patching. It's just, it's just out of control. But uh, anyway, so if people are interested in CoffeeScript too. Question is, can we use CoffeeScript in Salesforce? <laughs> I mean, it's just composed down to JavaScript, well, so yes. I mean, you certainly can in the VisualForce world. I don't know how that works with um, lightning. Can you tell me, John? 
Uh, well, CoffeeScript is just like TypeScript. It just compiles down to Java, so you should be able to. To JavaScript? Yeah. Yeah, and, I, I guess you would. Well, I mean, well, well we got to caveat this because everything's got to f- conform to the uh, locker service requirements. So as long as it does that, as long as the output... I'm guessing that's not, a, that. that's not like a, a dash option on the, on the CoffeeScript compiler. Uh, locker service compliant. Uh, let me see. <laughs> no, it does not appear to be dash lightning enabled. Although if anyone wants to go... You know, submit a pull request for that for that <laughs> feature. I'm sure they'd be happy to take it. You know, speaking of Slack, I saw that um, there's this thing called uh, actually I've never heard of it before, but it's called Keybase. But they have a new feature called Team, which is what hit my news feed. Teams, I guess, Keybase Teams, and people were saying it's kind of like uh, they're taking on Slack a little bit. But Keybase is all about just hyper security, so it's it's a kind of a chat or a group chat thing. Mm-hmm. Or at least the team's feature is, and it's it's just hyper secure. There's no there's no server. There's never an, a central authority that has ever has um, you know non completely encrypted that never has clear text access. Nothing has clear text access to your communication, other than in you and the people you're communicating with, whether that's an individual or a room or a team or something. Hmm. Seems like something Slack would. And is this is this soon? <laughs> Oh, I don't. I think that would be so hard for them to do. It's like Salesforce these days. You know, there are their architectures already so baked. It take it take an you know an act of God to some to come up with enough resources to make. They that just happen. did. They just got two hundred fifty million. That's oh, not enough. It's not enough to encrypt no, communications. That's just, that's, that's just for stakes and hookers. Oh, okay. <laughs> then that's the basically AKA the sales department. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, key basis for anyone. Imagine a Slack where the whole world. It, Except, huh? Oh, imagine a Slack for the whole world, except end-to-end encrypted across all your devices. Or a team Dropbox where the server can't leak your files or be hacked. Those are uh, strong claims there. Can't be hacked. It is, but it's the right tool for the right job. I mean, what company is going to encourage people to, to have sensitive conversations on a, on a Tool like Keybase or Slack. When I'm just looking at the website, can you? Is this something you can buy? I don't even see anywhere it can be bought. Is it just free? It's probably free. They're probably trying to build a user base right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't even see anywhere to pay or a um, a pricing or anything. Yeah, they're just getting started. They'll get there. They'll make it up on volume. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting concept, and it it certainly it certainly does make a play for the. For the, I guess, for Slack's uh, market, yeah, and I guess I can see how, how it's valuable for certain for certain teams that want to communicate and they want to make sure those are private. Um, I always think, you know, what there's going to be some day where we're going to regret having chosen Slack for the uh, Good Day Sir community. I haven't regretted it so far. I'm glad we're not doing focusing on Twitter or Facebook. I mean, none of those tools interest me at all. I mean, Slack has been both of those. really painless to just get on and and be on, basically. Yep. Oh, uh, hey, John, we, uh, we had the uh, new MVP thing. Oh, yeah. And um, David Litton is, is a new MVP. Congratulations. Yep. I didn't recognize... Did you recognize anyone else? No, I didn't, actually. Your name wasn't on there? I mean, I recognize some names from people that are just, again, back to Twitter and stuff, are, are hyper uh, socialists, social... Socialists. Not socialists. Socialers, I guess. You know, the people that are have hyper, been... Hyper-social, I think. The, the people that have been... You know, strongly campaigning for MVP. It's it's always obvious. <laughs> These days, it is anyway. Well, it it does seem uh, you know it's it's funny. Like if 
I don't know, a few years ago before I was made aware of it, um, it didn't seem like something that people would campaign for. It just seemed like something that people would ultimately get nominated for because they were doing something and they were, they were doing. But lately, I, I've been running into more people, more people asking, you know, well, how do I get into this? How do I do this? What, what do I need to do to do this? Like they're, they're actively campaigning to get in it. It's not like they're a part of the community and they get rewarded for being part of that community. Now it's like, I'm gunning for it. This is what I want. I'm going to get it. I'm going to do everything I, I have to to check all the boxes to be in that program. Um, and I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that seems to be the new, like as more people become more aware of the MVP program, it becomes this 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 uh, status to attain. I guess there's a guy named Eli Goldratt that um, everyone should read all, all everything he ever wrote. I think he wrote the goal. Did he write the goal? Let's see the goal. Or was that Gene Kim? I always forget. The goal. That is Goldratt. Okay. Anyway, is um, it go for the gold. But he had he had a quote, and I, this is so funny because I learned this quote. Wow, twelve years, fifteen years ago in my Six Sigma days, mm-hmm. and my my Six Sigma instructor, my black belt or master black belt instructor, um, master black belt. Yeah, nice. he 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 had a little bit. His version of it was, uh, "Tell me how you measure me, and I'll tell you how I'll perform." Mm-hmm. Well, really, he was just getting this a little bit wrong. The quote, and I never knew it was a Goldratt quote um, until recently, but it's "Tell me how you measure me." And I will tell you how I will behave. And I feel like that's where the MVP program is. You know, it might be. I mean, it, it serves Salesforce well to to have the MVP program because it does encourage people, especially those that want to be an MVP, to contribute more in the community. And again, contributions to the community, those of us that are talking about Salesforce, sharing our stories, sharing our experiences, sharing our how-tos, those are calls Salesforce doesn't have to take. That's all free for yeah. Salesforce. No, oh, it's not it's extremely and, smart. And, and, and it's not to say that Salesforce is is um, standing on our backs or anything, but it's just that when you're as big as an organization as they are, you could easily run out of money trying to staff those kind of people, those kind of knowledgeable people on your call centers. Yeah. Well, they've been running out because of money. Because if they're that they've smart been running out of money they know for Salesforce years. that well, they're going to be out building and charging more money than, than you're going to pay them sitting in a call center. Yeah. It's just the reality of it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it can serve as, as long as it's a well-balanced community, meaning, you know, Salesforce isn't taking too much and, you know, they're, they're, well, what it was a give and take, you know, giving as much as they're taking, as long as that balance is there with Salesforce, it's, it's a healthy community. But when, yeah. if, or when, or somehow Salesforce decides to start taking more from the community than they're giving back, then, then it could turn into a little bit of a toxic environment. Right. But yeah, to all those who became MVPs, congratulations, welcome. Uh, I wish we still had a summit, then we could get every, get everyone together to meet, but that doesn't seem to be in the cards anymore. There's no money for it. Yeah. <laughs> that might be one of those taking more than giving. Yep. I mean, I think the summit was, was a great gift to those in the community to get together and really get to meet and talk to product managers and see all the new stuff coming together. I mean, that was a nice give. We don't seem to have that anymore. So this this might be leaning the other way. Yeah. I don't know. Well, so I've been dealing with more performance, Salesforce performance problems. Um, and I've discovered, I, I actually think, so you know how like, you know, just the, the basic principle behind cloud computing and how you scale, you know, auto scaling, you kind of architect your apps in a way that as traffic goes up, certain thresholds are hit, you know, more, basically more computers get get spun up and automatically 
added to your pool right now. Mm-hmm. And I just actually I don't think Salesforce can scale pods. I think their architecture is actually I think that's and I think that's why there are literally hundreds of pods now because I don't think I don't think the the architecture that Salesforce has built is actually scalable. They have to just create more instances of it. Well, do you think it's because a pod is a backup for another pod? So if they're going to scale one, they have to scale both. And if and in the chain in that network of pods, well, I shouldn't have it- to. In fact, when it's in backup mode, it should actually be scaled way down. It should just only have like a few. You know, instances running in that pool because it's not getting any traffic. Mm. But Salesforce, I don't think their architecture supports. It. I think the, these pods are fixed size. I mean, I don't know. So the so the, what I was experiencing was um, again super slow, like Apex compiling, um, to particularly tests. Just to run one test was would, mm. would take like a, over a minute just to run a single test. Yeah, and it still is. And and so without doing any and, DML, and, and I and I have to give Salesforce credit. I mean. There were, you know, I, I probably a half a dozen um, people from, you know, their kind of operations performance team that are look were, that were looking into this, and, and in fact, they had already. Um, what I learned was they had been um, at this point, they had been looking into this for a couple of weeks. This the performance on this pod, mm-hmm. and they implemented a custom. Um, I can't remember what they called it. Some kind of like custom router type of thing. So when jobs would come in, like a, a tooling job would come in, if it had less than 15, the, the thing they implemented is like if it had fewer than 15 things in it, they route, they it bypasses the queue or whatever and goes straight to, I guess, straight to the to the build machines. Huh. And if it's more than that, then it they figure, well, you're f- deploying a bunch of stuff at once. You're doing a bunch of things at once. You expect to wait anyway. So it would then, that gets put in the queue. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a workaround. And and the and the thing I found interesting about that is that they actually didn't. I mean, obviously this pod has more demand than it can handle. Um, instead of making instead of scaling the pod up, they're having to do things just to. They're playing uh, psychology games. They're just taking oh, the existing so load, scaling it. They've they've kind of they're just this moving kind of things around, load balancing. Uh, yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not mock. I mean, and and the net effect may be a little bit better. Like people that are doing small jobs, like if I'm just running one test or a, a couple of test classes, I'm probably sitting there watching that, waiting for that to finish. So that makes sense. Again, it's a psych, it's well, a psychology. Yeah, mock was a bad word. I think I meant arbitrary. Cause I mean, wh- why 15? Why the number 15? Uh, that might've been arbitrary. It's just yeah. like, you had to pick it somewhere. They, they basically want, you know, small jobs that people are probably- No, they got, they got, they got freaking Einstein, man. Einstein can figure that, that crap out and load balance it properly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd think so, right? Got intelligent computers. It should be an intelligent load balancer. Yeah, I mean, actually, yeah. They, I think they use a product for load balancing, don't they? It's not even they don't even have to build that. It's well, it's. I mean, and maybe I, it just depends on where in the stack it's. Yeah, at. and yeah. it's. I mean, the reality is, is it, we're not just talking about you know spinning up some some more uh, Nginx instances and just throw them in a pool. I mean, there's there's a lot more to Salesforce's you know uh, infrastructure than that. I'm I'm sure it's complicated. I have no doubt. That's beyond my pay grade. Yeah, it is mine too. Um, but I'm just saying it, it's, it became pretty clear to me that because, and they, you know, they, they was cool because they provided me a lot of screenshots of, of graphs and things that showed how this traffic and the, and the wait times and the, you know, like the time that these jobs were waiting versus the time they were actually in, in you know, like at the compiler or whatever. Mm-hmm. So very interesting, but it just, it, it became clear that, you know, they, they, they can't scale this. All they can do is just shuffle, th- shuffle the existing things around to try to have it land in a better way. Well, it's not yet. I mean, hopefully they're working on updates to it. I mean, do, do you well, think, I, I don't know, do you John, think their partnership with Amazon listen, is going to change? Oh, well, I don't know. I hope so. But I also don't think that we're going to, in the U.S., we're going to see 
Salesforce running on Amazon in the US for it. Yeah, because I think a lot of that had to do with um, the cost of running servers, like I think in Australia or something, like the higher cost of, it's either the network bandwidth or just the cost of owning, running a data center yeah. there was like ex- 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 and, huge. And, I, you know, to your comment about like, you expect they would, this would be something they'd probably do pretty soon. I mean, it, you know, they are a $10 billion company and this has been their architecture for 20 years now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little um, long in the tooth. Also, I also discovered, and this is through, um, and, and Scott Wells has been a big help as, as well, and as usual, he you know he always is. There you go, doing another eliminated cloud. I plug. know. Well, you know, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> um, because I'm, you know, for a lot of these things, I'm using illuminated cloud, so I'm I'm also communicating with Scott, um, seeing if it's you know if it, is it something related to the tool or the system itself. What is it? And and um, it's actually been good because I think Salesforce, some of these guys at Salesforce have learned how one of these, how a major tool I see, um, mm-hmm. and what it's running into, how it's actually using the tooling API. And so like for what, so one of the things that I don't think at least some people realized was required is for certain operations, um, you have to make a, basically you have to query, you, know, you have to tooling API query to get all classes. Well, in this particular org, unfortunately, I think I have like six or 7,000 classes. Oh yeah. And I've for example, so every time works. you, every time you run a test, Illuminated Cloud, if you're going to run it through Illuminated Cloud, it has to query all these classes because it has to get IDs mm. for the classes. And now, what's interesting is in Winter 18, Salesforce is implementing a, you can do things by class name instead of the ID. So I see, well, no, if you're on, yes, 41 or higher, or is it 40? No, it'd be 41, right? 40, the next one will be 41. We're okay. on 40 now. Okay. Um, so when we're on 41... Uh, I guess, you know, Illuminate Cloud can have a switch to say, okay, you're on 41, then I don't have to query these classes. Because for a test that takes 40 seconds to run, that's like one test, mm-hmm. or I actually think it was like 60 seconds, because 30 seconds was being spent, 30 seconds was being spent on that query. Really? And it's proportional to, and this is what Salesforce said, that query return time is proportion, proportional to the number of classes. So in a typical org where someone might have 20 no, we're, or We're talking just a standard classes. query to the class object? Yeah, the, the tooling API, yeah. Oh, through the tooling API. Yep. And this org has thousands, uh, maybe even 10,000, I can't remember. But it's, huh. I think it's actually, I think it's like six to 7,000 classes. And so there's just a lot of things where you're just waiting because of that. And, wow. you know, another reason, don't ever install Financial Force either because I believe, I believe managed packages just don't don't install any big managed packages in your org. I mean, it's just not a good idea. It's not a good idea to run your ERP or your or a large financial package in Salesforce. It's not built for it. That shouldn't be the case. In though. so many ways, it's not built for it. That what shouldn't do you mean, be the case. What do you mean shouldn't be? I mean, I wish it wasn't the case, but what, should, you shouldn't have to say what, don't install financial force because it's it's a it's huge. I mean, basically, like I'm not taking any projects that have that are involved in financial force. If they have financial force, I just I don't want to work in the org. Just dance around it. I don't know. Yeah, but th- there should be something in the API that lets us exclude packages, isn't there? Well, in something, in some ways, you do exclude packages, but like for this, it's not. It's just it's all it's all classes. They don't. So is that is that a tooling thing, or is that like a feature that could? It's be... a problem with the API. This great tooling API. That's true. Is there's you have you to... can even say don't include these classes. You have to download the entire metadata. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a problem. If they, but, could, if they could at least give no, us a way well, to get that information faster so we can make the decision. Well, they are. That's not. what I'm saying. In one or 18, you can, you can actually say, hey, run this run this test name that's in this class called this, and the test method is called this. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about even just getting a full list of the metadata. I mean, that's always taken forever. Yeah. Oh, that's another problem in this particular org. 
Because again, I mean, to solve your problem of financial forces, I would just, I would say, okay, show me the metadata and now let me unclick this package. Don't, don't include anything from this package. So in this org, in this org, you know how every once in a while in Illuminate Cloud, you'll do the, um, What's it called when you re-download uh, the retrieve metadata? No, um, uh, the symbol, uh, the symbol offline, table, offline symbol table. Yeah, yeah, I can't do that in this org. Um, it take it'll take about oh twenty thirty minutes, and then eventually Illuminate Cloud will just exhaust all its memory, even if you bump it up the memory um, and just eventually die. I have cases on large orgs where it, I have to tell it not to download the the the, the metadata on first project creation. The symbol table or the metadata. Just creating a new project. Okay. Um, you have an option to to retrieve and generate the symbol table. Yeah. I let it generate the symbol table, but I turn off the, the download metadata because for some reason it either gets hung up somewhere and it never creates the source directory. And then everything else can't proceed because there's no source directory. And um and so what I found is if I just turn that off, let it go through, restart the project, and then go and retrieve, I have better success at creating that project than before, which I end up the state where it just never never finishes. Yeah. And again, this is all, I call it, this is what, you know, people would call accidental complexity. This is all, all these problems because you can, it's stuff only, it only runs in the cloud. There's no local runtime. So we, it creates this massive problem domain of what yours on your hard drive is not what's in the cloud. And you're constantly having to do this sync thing. Yeah. And then if you want to do any operation on these things, you got to then push them over to this other thing. And by then it might've changed because you're not the only user of that thing. And it's just, it's just a huge mess. It's, it's so just use a scratch work. You're, you're fine. Just use a scratch work. Yeah. Well, I would, if I could, <laughs> I just don't think DX is there yet. I mean, well, I, th- I, I need to learn more about DX because right now I, st- I still, all I know about it is scratch works and maybe that's all there is to it right now. Um, I struggle to see any kind of real development improvements coming out of that, at least that are tangible for me. Yeah. I mean, it's not with scratch works. They, they, f- I don't think they, I don't think it's for my use case. Like my use case is I'll create a, I'll create a sandbox and I'll either, it'll either be a full sandbox. So, because I'm, you know, let's say I'm, I'm trying, I need a bunch of data or, Maybe it's um, not a full sandbox, but I'll create a bunch of my own sample data, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now it's been seven days. You have a scratch or before it self destructs. Now they've now there's an option to increase that to thirty. But even I mean, I'll keep sandboxes for months. I don't have to recreate my sample data every thirty days. Yeah, you know, and then and then I have to again. I mean, one of the big problems I, I commit some changes, continuous build checks it out, tries to deploy it to a another sandbox, and there's. It's like there's there's no there's no nothing has improved that mm-hmm. nothing has improved deploying that to production. I mean, the metadata API is still a giant problem. I mean, even with DX, like what I can't even solve the problem of how do I just get all my metadata? Yeah, I mean that because the automated tooling I have, this combination of like the migration tool and Solenopsis and some of these other things, they don't have the ability to especially it's it's the foldered items that for some reason are really are really complicated. Um, so a lot of times what I'll have to do is I'll use an illuminated cloud. I think you can do this in, a, in the Eclipse thing as well. You can basically go through and it'll, it'll go through every f- all the foldered metadata and, and individually query all those to get all the contents. And yeah. you can just say select all basically. But that, and that's great if, I, if it's me sitting in front of my computer, right? Right. But when I'm talking about automated tools that are running headless that don't have illuminated cloud, there's no, there's no API to do this. You know that I know of. I mean, I, I don't know. And 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 DX. I mean, there should be a D, there should be a thing in DX that's just like get all my metadata, all my metadata. 
I don't want to have to like specify all the different types and the folder names and everything. It just should be, you're supposed to version all the things, right? Your version, yeah. your version control is the source of truth. Well, it's not the source of truth if I can't get it in version control. If I, if it's incredibly difficult to get all my metadata. And you're not even counting the gaps, right? That's not even including, yeah, the gaps, yeah. the things that, you know, you have to still have to go into orgs and do manually. Yeah, I was trying to ask, I know I was like looking off into my screen, but that's because I remember I was, I was looking into DX and I thought I, I thought I read somewhere that they had some tagline of like, always be deploying. <laughs> don't stop deploying. Yeah, it's like, don't stop deploying or something like that. And I'm like, I didn't think DX did that yet. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? I can't start deploying. I'm just trying to start deploying. I can't, I can't deploy if I can't get my metadata. And that's, that's, I, I feel that's, that's part of the problem is they're, they're so fast to market this stuff and put it out there as this thing that you can do. And, and then we're, we're stuck here going, okay, how do I do that? I didn't know you could do that yet. Or, or, and, then, and then it becomes, well, you can, but you have to do this, this, and this, and this, there's, this, this, this. There's, like, oh. there's a lot of cool stuff they've done with DX. But, I, but I would, it'd be cool to, take, to be able to take the DX team and dr- I'd love to drop them into one of these big products that I've worked on and said and say, you figure out how to get DX to work in an actual, real, big project where you have actual, real problems. Yeah. I mean, according to them, according to Salesforce DX, with Salesforce DX, you can now benefit from modern collaboration techniques such as or technologies such as Git to version control. Oh, you can now, now. Hey, listen, I've been doing this for <laughs> six years on Salesforce. <laughs> hold, hold on, I got to finish it. It says everything across your team, your code, your org configuration, and your metadata. They said everything. Everything. To make this possible, we're enabling you to export more of your metadata, define data import files, and easily specify the addition features and configuration options of your development, staging, and production environments. Install the force.com IDE2 now to do this. It's funny, courts have, and I don't know what the, the, the cases would be that set this precedent, but the courts have ruled that um, when, and, uh, when companies, you know, like on a commercial or marketing or whatever, there's, they get a lot of leeway on promises they can make. It's mm-hmm. not considered like a contract or whatever. In fact, um, the courts called it marketing propaganda is excluded from like, it's not a contract. Mm. Um, and so the courts would, when, the thing you were just reading right there, the courts would literally call that marketing propaganda. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that that their goal isn't noble. I'm just saying no, no, it's, and, and it's just like I said, they've done I, I feel cool like stuff. They're saying we're there, and I'm like, I don't, I didn't know we were there. I didn't think we were there yet. But but marketing is saying we're there. Go ahead, use it. Yeah, do it. Yeah, deploy. Yeah, yeah. I, there's really there's really two things they've got to do before I think this is useful for some of my products. Not all of them. I mean, I think there's some of some of the smaller ones or new things I, I'm 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 still tinkering with the X with. But mm-hmm. uh, one of them is. Uh, figure out a way to get all metadata. You know, there needs to be a, why is there not a call? Why is there not, you know, an SFDX org colon get all metadata or something? Well, it, first of all, I mean, it should build that package server side and then download it. So, so the way it. that, right now it's, it's no, very, the way it works is you have to give it a, you either have to give it a package name, yeah. select that, and that's, in your point, that's if you're an ISV. Mm-hmm. That's what that use case is. Or you have to give it a package.xml that's already populated with right. everything from your org. Well, in order to do that. Yeah, first of all, my package.xml's are like 200 megabytes. They're yeah. giant. I mean, I'm not, I, I need something to populate that for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And good luck doing that. <laughs> I mean, if, I mean, why does it not moderately that? sized orgs? Well, at least traditionally with the metadata API. I haven't tried the tooling API to see if that's any better. But traditionally, back in the day when I was trying to download a lot of this stuff or generate a lot of this stuff um, for use in custom projects, um, you'd have to break up all your, you'd have to batch it and break it up into separate different calls. You couldn't just say, give me all the metadata. 
No, you'd have to. Okay, just give me the reports because I know that's a beast. Yep. Now give me the the objects and the and the whatever else. You know, you'd have to break it up into those. And so there's an, there's that's that's one area. Another area is how does how does DX help me with? Um, let's say we renamed a field in Salesforce refactoring. So that so the field itself got renamed. Um, it didn't get deleted. Got renamed. That's a, there's an important distinction because in one case you lose you lost all your data, in the other one you didn't. Right. Um, which and, which also means that all the workflow rules, all that metadata has changed, any APAC classes that refer to them, all that's changed. Reports have changed. All these you definitions. I I, I'm telling you, you, rename a field in Salesforce and then pull all your metadata back down and do a get status to see what's changed. Yeah. There uh, there are I mean profiles, uh, profiles, reports, the workflow. Um, t- communication templates. There's a ton of things that, like you're, you, you know, unless you see that, you, you would never, you'd never think that that, you know, just renaming a field could change that many things. But now the question, well, that's great that you can pull. That's great that you can actually pull that metadata down, assuming you've already got that defined in your package.xml, of course. But then, how do you now? Now, I want you to deploy that change to uh, your, you know, your QA sandbox. What's that going to do? It's going to create a new field. It's, yeah, it's going to create a new field, yeah. and it's not even going to know to delete the old one. Yeah. Right, and that's so. That's another, that's actually yet another thing that I don't think DX helps us with, which is deletes. Yeah, the metadata dates never really helped us much when it came to deletes. Well, and and there are areas where it does deletes. Like and they've got that whatever that sync status API thing is, where yeah. once you hook DX up to a scratch org and you delete something, it knows you deleted something. But and that's cool for when you're working just with a scratch org in a, in a short little iteration thing. Mm-hmm. But when you're going to deploy that to a sandbox, a QA sandbox, or into production, there's nothing that I know of still that that can handle a delete. Or a rename, or you know anything like that. Yeah, I mean the metadata API, especially the newer, not the 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 the, the, the synchronous one. Then there's a newer synchronous, and they literally call it like the CRUD metadata API that has some support for renames. But how do you when you're looking at your source code, right? It's a static snapshot, right? Now. And and maybe we get to some point where there's the, the model of you know how the way like um that my, like database migration works like and you'd have a folder in your source code with just like a enumerated list of all every database migration you've done like you know yeah. alter table re, you know right. add it's, field rename field you can, exactly. you can, those you can replay those yeah. again right exactly so unless we get but some you model get that with Git though right all your commits and everything your your deletions and everything should be in Git and you should be able to play that through for a deployment right. Well, there's there's a lot of problems here. First of all, those are all going to be um, that API is really limited on how many things you can do at once. Yeah, and so you're going to end up with all a bunch of n- um, non-atomic deployments. That's right, because it's got to be atomic. So it's basically <laughs> this is your known build. This is what it looks like, and technically you should be able to go, uh, uh, boom, move this here. Now it looks exactly the same. Yep. You know, almost almost like just delete that environment and put this one there. An- another thing that's required for that model to work <laughs> is people can't make changes in production. Right, because you're replaying again. You're replaying like this this list of metadata operations, and if it goes to rename a field, but you already renamed it in production, well, that's going to fail. Yeah. And if and 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 you know the great thing about in a in a typical environment where you like if your if your database migration fails in the in the middle of deployment, no big deal. You just put you you just put your backup that you did right before you deployed. Right. right? You did backup. Right. You put that right back in, and you and you then you you. Production still running. Backup. You never switched over. You never switched over to the new instance, so you're good. Um, but in Salesforce, how do you? You can't do that. I wouldn't call it a backup. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, let's say you do a backup right before you deploy on Salesforce of your metadata. Yeah, of everything, and then your deployment because they're not atomic, so they kind of fill halfway through. So now you're in a you're in an unknown state. It's like, oh no problem. We'll just rep- we'll just put our backup back online. But you you. 
You can't do this with Salesforce. There's no way to do That's that. That's why I hate the trees. There's no way to do that. There's no restore path. Uh, yeah, there's not. I mean, it's basically another deployment. You're basically taking this older build and deploying that. It's not a. But that's not going to. That's, that's going to fail. Restore. That's it's not. not a, that's not going to deploy. Right. <laughs> that backup is not going to deploy. True, but I mean, in, in for all intents and purposes, it's not a backup and restore feature. It's not you know you know roll back to this this known build. It's yeah. I mean, you can you might be able to deploy that to a fresh org, maybe. Even then, there's all kinds of problems with that. But yeah. Well, I mean, it's good to see that we're making progress in that direction. That there's there's a there's an initiative, and it's got a name again. Again, and marketing to it. And there so, is so much accidental complexity with this. The Salesforce is this whole cloud model with all their proprietary technology and query languages and programming languages. They've they've created a monstrous problem for themselves. That they've got some super smart people working on lots of them thousands of really smart people that's how that's how big of a problem they've created for themselves and they're just, they're just treading water at this point it's like i mean i'm do i'm doing this java spring boot project with a view front end and it's just a thing of beauty everything's fast my tests run fast great languages great abstractions great front end technology great back end technology is everything patched and updated <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, you know, because I can I can with I can go in with in the Gradle and just say show me everything that could be updated. And you and got just, that maintenance plan already already put up there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I like Salesforce and does a lot. There is a lot of stuff that does for you that's e- that's easier than other things. And and I don't know. It's just boy, as a you know, as a uh, as a working software engineer that has worked on all kinds of systems. It's you know, you you see. You see all these improvements that they really need to make, but I also do very much appreciate uh, this uphill battle they've got. And yeah. even though they're working their asses off on it, it's it's just it's going to be a little bit at a time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it's tough to to unravel that, but it's good to see that they have an initiative to do that. They're not just doubling down on their existing tech; that they are moving it forward and advancing it, and you know, attempt attempting to unravel the I don't know the spaghetti that exists. Yeah. Uh, and 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 you know, from what I understand of how they're structured internally, I mean, it's not just like one group that has to do this. They're, they're spanned across various different groups that are responsible for very specific domains of the software, and so it's also just like a, a communication thing, you know, coordination oh. and communication thing as well. It's like you know, have you seen these? Um, it, it's uh, what's the mythical man month, right? The the idea that you can put uh, nine women on a pregnancy and have a, and and gestate a baby in in one month. <laughs> <laughs> I've never. Heard yeah. that. Uh, I um, thought I read that book. I don't remember that part. Well, that's, and it's it's <laughs> these are all related ideas, but the idea of like a, a a team that can be fed with two pizzas. That's the biggest team. Mm, if yeah. it's bigger than if you can't feed them with two pieces, it's too big. And the reason is because all these people have to communicate, and the cost of communication grows exponentially with each person you add to a team. Yeah. And so then you have to figure out how. Well, now we have a three pizza, and we got to split this up. And then you have to, you know, you have to. You have to figure out now how do how do you split your project up in a way that you define good interfaces between the teams, and every once in a while you'll have a scrum of scrums or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's different things you can do, but you know you've got to you've got to separate the problem and the solution space into two different projects now, which is not not easy, but it's better than letting your project get out of control where communication is just a huge mess. Yeah. Well, we have some community stuff. Okay, we can cover. Uh, actually, a lot of it I think we kind of covered. Um, so this one, this came from someone who wants to be anonymous. Um, this one's a, the topic is server side versus client side development. Uh, he says uh, we have a lot of discussions about client side and server side development regarding performance, how code should be how code should be structured, limits which can be avoided, 
estimation of time needed for development, et cetera. Uh, so, and then from that, the question is, you know, when should frameworks be used? What are the advantages and disadvantages? So I guess, I guess basically what are the pros and cons of, you know, client side versus server side. And, and when it comes to client side, what the uh, frameworks of choice should be. Well, on the, on the idea of client side versus server side, I, I don't feel like those are substitutable things. I mean, <laughs> certain things have to be server side and certain things are going well, to be client I, side. I, to be fair, in the world of lightning, that's kind of what we're battling now. You know, we have we have more capabilities that we're pushing client side with with Lightning and JavaScript, with a kind of server side API that's starting to take shape. Yeah. So, and again, I'm not sure exactly what this person meant by this question, but one one thing you have to keep in mind is, you know, on anything client side, especially in like a web browser, it's running on someone else's computer that you have no control over, right? Right. So. You know, they could get in there and screw stuff up, or you know, either unintentionally or intentionally, you know, hack your code to do something else, or even so, unintentionally with plugins on browsers exactly. that manipulate There's, the DOM and everything. So you always have to make sure that you know whatever whatever smarts you put in the in the client, every when, as soon as they you know are calling back into your server side API to to submit results or data, or whatever, like that's got to be sanitized and validated. You have to have full validation. You can't assume that the client did what you expected it to. Right. You have to always validate, and that's. And that's how we've we've tried to come up with frameworks now that you know you write your validations in one place and those get that's going to get applied on the server and the client so you don't have to have all that duplicated code like you have validations in JavaScript and you have validations in Java because one's on the client one's on the server right so and also you know I try to keep clients I still subscribe to the notion of keeping clients as dumb as possible like clients should be responsible for like um, client things view things like laying out screens and whatever um, I'm not I don't want to implement uh, some fancy algorithm in the UI I'm gonna do, I'm gonna Keep that on the server. Yeah, I was um, going to say, I mean, you probably should be mindful of, of your IP as well. You know, Exactly, because your IP side. is going into the client, right? right? And also, you know, if you're going to spin up... By um, IP, I mean intellectual property, just to be clear. Since <laughs> not, not internet protocol. Not internet protocol. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, if, let's say you have a mobile app too. I mean, if, if the more brains you keep on the server side, it makes it easy to have different clients. Like a, you might have a web client and a mobile client and mm-hmm. two different mobile clients, right? I mean, right. and if you've got, if you put all your complex stuff and you're on the client side, then you're, that's a lot of coding you're having to do just to maintain a, you know, two or three different client platforms. But you can see the attractiveness of client side in that offloading from your servers. You're not having to build, you know, gigantic servers and, you know, it cuts it cuts the chatter down on the transactions going back and forth that the client's able to right. do a lot more. So there's that argument, you know, I'd rather, why, don't, why would I use my server's compute power when I can use everyone else's compute power? Right. Um, which is an okay argument, except when you consider the fact how, how extremely cheap. I mean, that's, that's probably not your problem. Your, your, your problem is probably not that you're, you're, you're using so much servers that they're, they're becoming your, one of your bigger costs. Well, that's true traditionally, but let's, let's put that in the context of Salesforce. I mean, you have limits on Salesforce where you don't in the client. Um, I mean, yeah, there's only so much, right, limits. right. There's only so much right. memory allocated to your right. sandbox no. browser window, but. So when your clients, you know, calls your API that you've implemented in Apex REST or whatever, um, yeah, you you have to, whatever you're going to do with that on the server side in Salesforce, you got to be able to do it in that one transaction right. w- within limits. Or you somehow just plop the data in and then somehow do some kind of background job or, or um, you've got some external agent, you know, running on AWS or Heroku or something that's then... Prot chugging through that data somehow if it's some kind of big job or something. Yeah, I mean, I tend I tend to want more of the functionality, at least back end functionality in terms of you know, you know, calculations or any kind of heavy lifting on the server side. And I I do try to keep the clients light. I do want them to be focused on 
rendering the content, maybe doing some validation for the user, but mainly for the user experience, not yes. so much to cut traffic or anything like that, but just for the user experience, so they're not having to click submit waiting to see that, oh, this failed. Yep. I want them to get you know some instant feedback. So that's kind of where I focus when it comes to client side. I try not to do too much heavy lifting on the client side. Although I have been tempted in scenarios like where I want to push a file to Salesforce and Salesforce can't read it, but my the browser can read a, you know, a 10 meg CSV just fine. <laughs> mm. But Salesforce chokes on it because yeah. it doesn't have the resources for that. Yeah. So, you know, you get tempted by things like that. And, and there are and, probably situations where it's valid, but... Right, there's all kinds of specific use yeah. cases where it may make sense to... I mean, it's always a trade-off. There's no, there are no absolutes in software engineering. It's always, you have to look at the, the for a given situation, what are the trade-offs here? Yeah. But it, to me, though, the general rule of thumb is, you know, keep your clients as simple as possible. There's exceptions. But yeah. that's my general rule. Well, you know what muddies that water is, uh, you know, these web web technologies, so like Atom.io and stuff like that, where you're basically building an application, a desktop application using web technologies. Um, yeah, but it's it, it's that's a, you're building a, a a desktop app though. Yeah, so just happens to be using JavaScript and Node. Yeah, God help you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the second topic. I don't know if this is a topic or more just confirmation of some of the topics that we discuss. Um, this one is, uh, I do love when you guys discuss how development and consulting should work together in topics like requirement definition, estimation, proposal creation, user story structure, testing, client feedback, communication. And these are uh, things that John and I pretty much disagree on <laughs> across the board. <laughs> well, we have some similarities. We have some things that, that hold true, but you know, I... <sighs> Yeah, like, we, we do have certain, like, I think I'm, and maybe to my own detriment, because I get, I seem, I seem to be more stressed out all the time than you are, but, you know, because I do let things slide. I do let, no, I just drink more than you do, so I have Oh, it. maybe. <laughs> um, I mean, what was I talking about today that was really stressing me out? Some of your architecture stuff, right? I don't know how much you want to get into that or if you do at all, but we can get into it. I, I, I plan We're to also get like, into it. What are we, hour and 40 minutes? Oh, still got plenty of time. <laughs> We missed last week. We had a double we, up this week. There are probably two people left listening right now. That's all right. They got, we got their download numbers. You know, it's amazing. I, I looked at the numbers earlier, and it's like, um, there are so many people still catching up. Really? It's like we didn't skip last week. That's just how many people that are still <laughs> downloading and listening. There are so many people behind. And it's in, and I can see it in the data, but then I, you know, all these little anecdotes come flying up. People are saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm five episodes behind, but... And they'll chime in on something we talked about, you know, a month, a month and a half ago. That's good. That means the topics have staying power. I guess. Yeah. It, what 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 what, what uh, scares me is that I said something really stupid like two episodes ago, and it's just now catching up to me. Yeah. <laughs> something stupid and wrong, or something. I'm used to that. I say stupid things all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um. So so so, when it comes to to my particular situation that I'm dealing with right now in terms of consult uh, consulting. Uh, I was kind of light on hours for a while. And so I, I raised my hand and said, hey, I need some work over here. And so I took on a, a bunch more work. And I also took on something that I don't normally do. Like for a while there, I was really focused on development stuff. Um, I didn't want to do architecture stuff because it was just way too much of my time, way too much of my thought process. Um, there's always numerous amounts of meetings and unplanned meetings that just to be able to get the architecture and design ironed out. Um, and I find that that doesn't, doesn't scale. Like, I think it's great if you're like you know a salary what? Here's employee. Here's my perspective. It doesn't work. <laughs> well, I'm talking about specifically all this architecture stuff. Yeah. So I, that's why I don't, I, I won't do those projects because I don't think any of that stuff actually works. Well, you have to have a plan on what you're going to configure, uh, what you're going to build. I well, mean, that's, and that's, that's all I'm talking about. I actually want to have a whole episode about planning. How do you plan? How do I plan? Because you still have to plan. I'm not saying yeah. you don't plan, but all this 
Uh, and we won't get into it now because that's, but we should save that for that yeah. episode if that ever happens. But yeah, next I, week, <laughs> be ready. <laughs> that's you putting too much pressure on me, John. You're stressing me out now. Oh, and especially since we have to do an early recording probably next week. Yeah, so. we do. So there you go. We'll yeah, just make I'm, that the topic, and then you, I'm going to be Mr. Mom all next week. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so what so what I'm learning and what I'm finding is that when uh, the technical arch, arch the technical architecture role Easy I feel is say. better served by someone who either has a, a contract like a month like a three month to six month contract and has a guaranteed salary, or someone who has an actual salary. Um, it's really hard, especially when you're trading dollars for hours. The, the way you scale hours for dollars, meaning I need more money, so I'm going to make more money, so I'm going to work more hours to get more money. It's mm-hmm. it's rare. That you can say, I need more money. My rate is now X. I'm going up 10% or my rate is now 20%. How, how is architecture, this this architecture type of work that you're doing, how is that different? I mean, how does that affect the whole billing and how much money you're making versus anything else? What's because different about it's, it? It's because the time, the hours of availability. So like, I'm only really effective as, unless I'm spending all night just documenting, which that shouldn't be the case. You shouldn't be spending hours and hours documenting. That's just wrong. That's part, partly why I don't do those projects. <laughs> so most of your time in architecture is spent meeting with people, having conversations, ironing things out, just trying to understand the requirements and, and work out the conflicts between requirements and try to get to a point where we have a plan. Uh, and that's that's a nine-to-five job or an eight-to-five job. That's when people are available to do that kind sure. of stuff. okay. And so you're you're on this constant cycle of calls and this yeah. and that. Okay, so you're billing eight hours a day because it takes it takes it's nine to five thing, right? <laughs> not always. What what not always? You're, it's not always nine to five. Well, so so let's say this. Let's say I have a I, I'm I'm engaged. I have I'm I'm on oh, this. Oh, I think I know where you're going. The problem is is people aren't available. So in some a certain day, you might love to be able to work in this eight hours. You can't work right. on it because you're waiting for someone who's right. in meetings or you got to wait so you can schedule meetings. Right. So it's like you can bill an hour and a half one day, half an hour the next right. day, maybe eight hours a day after that. It's just, it's all over the, across the board. Right. And you don't have any control over it. You know, you should do, it, so, should, it should be a fixed price project. Yeah. And so, and so the other problem, so so one thing you can do to kind of what's great that about is, that being a fixed, sorry to interrupt. What's great about <laughs> that being a fixed price project is it puts some, it lights a fire into the client's butt. They, They've got to have some responsibility here. Like you're part of their team. Well, I don't know. Now. With fixed now price, you- clients feel like they can take as much time as they want because the pr- price isn't going to change, and so you end up kind of y- your margin shrinks quickly. You know that's true. Uh, that doesn't help you there. But um, you could, I mean, put put a put a, it's a fixed price and it's a ninety day. It's a ninety days. Yeah. And what if we get done in ninety days? Is you know if we need to go on beyond that, then we will do, we'll do a new con- we'll do a new contract. Yeah, I mean, you gotta, it, you gotta, there's got to be some incentive because well, if not, you're the guy that's sitting, you're getting screwed every day. Yeah. And, and so, that's not fair. And what, what I was going to say is that one way I, I kind of offset that with my development is I'll stack a couple of projects. Mm. And it's... And you, you, you should you, just bill, you should do monthly billing. You can... You, you can want, do, as long as I'm on this project, I'm going to bill you for a month. And it's just, you know... Yeah. And, and, and just, you know, you figure out what your probably average amount of time you're going to spend on. Let's say you, you think you're going to spend 20 hours a day on it. That's So it's 20 times a good hourly rate. And that's how much they, they get you for a month. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, that that's, that's one way to handle it. It's not the way I handled these and it's not how I handled things historically. And it, it's painful um, because I can't, you can't stack two or three architecture jobs. No. It's, it's too much, oh, it's too yeah. much task switching. It's yeah. too much mind switch. You, you'll end up like going crazy, crossing over design or ton of meeting conflicts. Now with development, it's a little bit easier because I can stack those. I can, I can. Time slice, you know, a good chunk of my day for one project and a good chunk of my day for another. It's still hard though, or at least it's for still me difficult, it is. Yeah. but I can. But also when I'm focused on development, I'm not focused on anyone else's schedule. I'm focused on my schedule. So I can say, you know what, tomorrow I, I need to get a good eight hours 
in on this one project and I can do that because mm-hmm. I don't have any meetings or anyone else's scheduled to con- conflict. Or I can go, you know what? I have a week to build this time frame. I can do ha- my first morning on this one project. I can do the the, the afternoon on this other project. Um, and, you know, as long as you don't do too much of that, if you're trying to task switch like three or four different things in one day, you're going to dr- go crazy. So that's not it. But at least from that, I can scale that and I can manage that effectively. With the architecture stuff, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to be effective doing multiple architecture roles. It's just too brain intensive. It is. So, um, okay. Well, did we answer this person's question or questions? Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I feel like they packed a lot of stuff in there that I, uh, we don't think we're going to be able to, I don't know. No, no, no. I mean, that was, that was just kind of a general topic of discussion okay. for us. And it, it kind of, it led into the thing I wanted to talk about anyways, which was my, the architecture stuff I've been working on lately. And, uh, what I realized about what I don't like about doing architecture. I really do like doing development. I like managing my schedule around development. Um, it's not that I don't like, it's not that I dislike architecture, but it's it's one of those really brain intensive things that makes it really difficult for me to stack and get my hours in. Like I, it, right now I'm I'm having a hard time because I'm doing architecture and like two other development projects. And the architecture is eating up so much of my day because it's cutting in between my development time. So like I have like a meeting for architecture in the morning that splits my development time. And then another meeting that I wasn't planning on having because we couldn't get this question answered in the afternoon. And so now that time is split. So where I normally would be able to focus for a few hours and get some work done, it's now split. And you know what happens when you split, you have to walk away from it, come back, figure out where you're at and then start over and then keep going. And it just, it just makes that cycle of, of iteration, just extremely stressful. It's it's interesting that you've you've you're now using the word architecture. So you have the, you know what you call your development products. You're actually building stuff, right? And and you certainly do architecture in the when you build stuff. You're also I mean you're doing architecture too. Yeah. But you're using the term architecture project to re- refer to something where nothing gets built, and everyone's <laughs> making all of this is my problem with these things. Yeah. Everyone's making all of these upfront big decisions when they at the point in the project when they know the least about it. Yeah. And people spend, it's just a mental, I can't even say the word on this podcast. It's a circle blank. It's a mental blank. It's, it's a all mental these things. Fit. It is, it is, <laughs> it is so, you know, everyone is operating on unproven assumption, on unproven assumption, on unproven assumption. It's just a, it's a house of cards. It's all going to completely change. So right, when the rubber hits the road, it's like, it's just, you know, what's yeah. the, what's the, what's the, um, you know the best battle plan never survives first contact with the enemy, and it, just just start building something, people. I mean, yes, plan something. Figure out what you're, you know, what you, how long you just overall how long you think this is going to take. Don't spend a ton of time on that because it's all it, other than some first estimates. You're just wasting your time after that. Um, yeah, I, I wish I wish it could say it was that easy. I would love it for it to be that easy, but like even right now for this small first phase implementation, which there's some follow-up phases that I have to be conscious of and, and pretty much design a data model around, even though we're all in agreement that I don't know what I'm, what I need to know to do that. I still have to put pen to paper and say, this is what the data model architecture is going to look like. And this is what needs to be configured. It, it, I don't like being in this situation. Um, the other thing is I have Salesforce involved. I have them and their architecture team looking at my stuff. And I'm having to justify the decisions I made with them. <laughs> uh, what could possibly And then I wrong? have internal <laughs> reviews with the team who are going to be delivering and configuring, and they have questions. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I, I, it's not optimal. I know we're not using Salesforce the way it was meant to be used, but this is the most optimal way given our time and budget. And everyone's like, but yeah. it should be done this way because you need to use best practices. And I'm like, I, I know. 
I, I will say on, on <laughs> if this is a Salesforce project, you do have to because because <laughs> there is no refactoring and the concrete sets very fast. <laughs> you do kind of have to make a bunch of decisions up front. Well, well, John, you know, anytime that you know you're this, this is stressing you out and you're you're doing all these context switches and you're dealing with all this BS of long, unfounded, un, unproven documents with all these. <laughs> All these unvalidated assumptions and theoretical bullcrap. Just uh-huh. remember this, okay? Programming is really awesome. <laughs> ah, sorry. Just trying to get some clips in. Yeah, you've been you've been light on them. Just remember, uh, just build one app at a time, John. One freaking app. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't make money when I build one app. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta build like two or three at a time. You're not, you know, you're not setting up your contracts right. That's why you're not making money when you build one app at a time. I don't have contracts. I have, I, I work with people <laughs> who, who, we, we mutually agree to trade dollars for hours, mm-hmm. and sometimes there's not enough hours to go around, so I have to ask other people for hours, and then all of a sudden everyone has hours at once, and I'm like, oh my god, I have too many hours. Yeah. But hey, if you're gonna build for hours, just say, hey, I'm gonna build you 120 hours a month for this project. So let's make sure we're using my time wisely. Well, that's the thing. I thought about that too, but then I'm like, well, crap, if, if I'm not working on this project, they're going to want me to work on this other project, which I don't want to work on because I don't like the people on it. Yeah. It's, you see, it's one of those things where like, yeah, I could do that. I could just say I'm on retainer and you have to pay me and you better have work for me. But then I lose control over the type of work because they're paying me. And I'm like, it, it's, it's, it's one of those oh, things. It's one of those yeah. things. I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to have a regular segment, a weekly segment that we're where you sit on my couch and I help you work through these things. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you that, listen to the? Um, I thought this. Was did a, you listen to the um, hourly billing is nuts thing? The what's yeah. the guy's name? Uh, John is it John? Uh, Jonathan something. Uh, it's not stewardship, is it? Hourly billing is John nuts. Stamos. I mean, I'm trying. Son, I'm, son I'm trying John to uh, slowly, you know, indoctrinate you into my way of thinking. Jonathan Stark. A Stark, yes. Hourly billing is nuts. Dot com. Yeah. Yeah, I actually have not read that book, but I've listened to some of his stuff. He's got like a, a podcast, and well, it is nuts, but that's the way the Salesforce world works, and I don't have the clout to change that. How, why is the Salesforce world full of really? I mean, just um, it's dominated by unenlightened companies and people. Why? Why is that? It's just like it's like the agile revolution never happened. It's like it's like you know these companies like Pivotal and ThoughtWorks didn't teach us. Uh, you know, their lessons. It's just like, none of that happened. We're in crazy land where it's, it's 1995. Well, I, I and we've got BRDs and DFDs and DDSs. And, I think a lot of it is just, <laughs> it's just everyone trying to protect their butts. I mean, think about it. We, we don't have control over the platform. Not like we would setting up a what server. Mean, what's the platform? What do you mean by that? By, do you mean the Salesforce? First platform. Okay. We 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 really don't know. I mean, we we basically that just doesn't tailor change that much for me. How that, does how does it not change? How does not running into a limitation and 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 see that eat into your margin? Let's say you did a fixed fee, a fixed bid, or fixed fee project, and you thought it was going to be take ten hours, and then you come across the Salesforce bug, it ends up taking you thirty hours, and you basically lost all your revenue. I think a lot of How people are just your protecting rep- I mean, their butts. Well, I know because when people, I don't choose the Salesforce platform. Other companies choose the Salesforce platform. They hire me to do stuff on it. So I'm not the one who chose the platform. So they they pay me for my time or I do a fixed price thing and I, I factor into that and that's based what on, I know about this that's, platform. That's based on value, right? It's a combination of, well, it's, it is based on value. And value is part of the equation because I won't do a project where I don't think it's going to be 
worth what the cu- what the customer gets out of it. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. It's just that I don't know. I ju- I just I you know I I know a lot of companies that that used to do fixed fixed bid because co- comp- clients would be like. We've got X amount of dollars, and somehow or another, they, they would get the partner to agree to a fixed bid. I've worked on those projects, mm-hmm. and it and every single one of them fails because we always end up losing money. And so everyone's gone to this time and materials thing, and it's it's whatever it takes, and that's how much we're going to bill, and it's become this accepted you know what? thing. And, and, and not the, only is that bad on people like you and I, but that's really bad on the clients because they're the ones who end up getting hosed because their consulting company is still doing it the wrong way, which is going to result in the project going way over budget like it does every time. Yeah, but if if, if you're going to say we're going to do fixed fee or value pricing or whatever okay. label you want to yeah. put on it, mm-hmm. doesn't that mean more planning up front? Doesn't that mean understanding what you're going to build, what the scope is, so there's no creep and you're not losing your butt on margin? No, I, in fact, I don't even I don't even have the rule of no scope creep. I I like to think of it as like, okay, you want this certain outcome. You want this business outcome, right? And I'm going to try to figure out how long I think it's going to take me to do it. But I'm also going to know, I know that there's all, in the projects, there's always unexpected things. There's always changes. There's always some scope creep. Um, even within getting, sometimes you have to creep the, the, the solution scope mm-hmm. to achieve the same business outcomes. Like the business outcome didn't change. If you want to change that, now I'm going to, I'm going to charge you a different price. Right. But if your outcomes didn't change, I want to, I want to be able to say, Hey, I'll do it for this amount of money. And I'm taking, like I'm taking all those things into account, knowing that clients change and, and the scope, the, the solution scope is going to change that I'm going to hit problems on Salesforce. I'm going to have to end up building a little piece out here in Heroku or something, all that stuff. I'm going to factor that in. And is that a pretty big multiplier? Yes, it is. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, but that I can go back, really I can go, but I can go back to and say, Hey, Mr. Client. Miss client, this is a, I can do this project for $10,000. Now, what I've also done with them is I figured out, I've because I talked to them about their business outcomes, I know what this is, I need to find out what this is worth to them. Mm-hmm. If this, you know, if I, if, if I can do it for 10,000, you know, I want it to be worth 50 or $100,000 to their business. If not, it's not even worth doing. And, right. I, and these are, I'm kidding, you using fake numbers here. Right. I mean, a lot of projects are a lot bigger than that. But I mean, I want it to be a, 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 a fact, many factors you know, uh, somewhere around an order of magnitude more valuable to them than what they're going to have to pay me to do it. And that's with me having all my factors, all my multipliers in, knowing that I'm going to hit all these things that I don't know about or I'm not anticipating. But you know they're there. They're there in every project. Yeah, but I, I think, and I agree with that. I'm not, not disagreeing with that. But and I you think, can sit around with your committees to... and your meetings and try to and try to pre, before you start building a thing, figure out what all those little things are. But that is a complete waste of time because you're, you're going to be wrong about 90% of it. No, I agree. And there's things that because we are experienced, you know, developers, but, architects, engineers, whatever, there's things we know. Because, and that's one thing. I mean, we're responsible. We, we know this platform. We've been working on it for a long time. We know what its pros and cons are. We know what its strong points and its weak points are. And we're going to use all that in coming up with a number for the client and to figure out how big this project is. But trying to, to, but trying to you know, figure out what every, you know, every user story and and before the client sees anything built, because they're going to need the flexibility to change what those stories are as it's being built. And the sooner they, the sooner you start building things, first of all, you build the riskiest things first or the things that have the most important value first, right? Because you mm-hmm. always want to be, you always want to be mitigating risk and delivering more value sooner than later, right? Right. So if you do run out of budget or 
you know, you hit some timeline, the client's just like, hey, we need to run. I mean, we need to, we need to launch this thing. You've built all your valuable stuff up front. So you probably have a, sh- and you also have been, because you, you're a good practitioner, you've been delivering valuable software to every iteration. Like this is, you know, you've got continuous integration or you're deploying somewhere. You know, you can at any point, the client can decide what, what, what is done. When is, when is it done? I mean, only the client can decide when it's done, really. I mm-hmm. mean, um, and if they are like, hey, it's actually more valuable to us to launch this thing as it is now than to finish these last 20 stories. Those aren't even, because we worked on all the important stuff first, those other 20 are, are actually not near as valuable as us just launching this thing now because we've got this event or it's the time of year for something. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of, you know, engineering practices plus just, you know, I think just business pr- from principles and just some logic. I don't know. Yeah, I, I see. I, I thought I thought about all this too a lot because I, I do want to kind of change how I work at times and I, I do want to provide more value than just chase dollars for hours. You know, I, I really do believe because in the, the client kind of doesn't want an hour of your model. time. They don't want hour. They no, don't, they, they they don't want, want, they want a, the end result. Exactly. Yeah. They don't want 500 John hours. They don't right. care about that. What do they can do with that? Yeah. Um, but I, oh, where was I going with that? I don't know. <laughs> I lost my train yeah. of thought. I, th- I think ultimately it's just that the way the ecosystem works, the way people get introduced, the way people acquire projects is a lot, most of the time through Salesforce leads. Yep. Um, and that already comes with an opinion. A lot of times it's also through, it's been, it's been filtered through Salesforce's it, PS organization. Yeah. And then, and so there's, there's kind of already this, this expectation, well, not, not expectation, but there's always, there's usually this kind of concept of request for bids. So RFPs and, and everything. So, so everyone's kind of looking at the pricing and everything. And I feel like the value pricing works better when you can kind of establish a relationship with them and talk with them and spend that upfront time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's usually not how these things play out. Usually there's like some sales guy who's trying to gather requirements and try to get size the deal. And if it's sized the right way, meaning that they, they feel like it's something they can take on because some companies only take on deals that are 50 plus, you know, that kind of stuff that by the time it gets down to me, you know, this lowly software engineer, yeah, no, architect. I totally understand what you're saying. You don't have any control over that. Yeah. Um, but even if I was to inject myself in that process, how do you unravel this web of just hourly billing that exists in, the, in this ecosystem? Well, I, I, you can't. The answer is you can't. You, you've got to be operating. I mean, you're, you, you're not going to be able to change these other companies from, from where you sit. Well, not even that. Let's, let's say tomorrow we open up Good Day Sir, studio, uh, Good Day, Sir uh, Consultancy or whatever. Um, which uh, maybe we will someday. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and now we're, we're, we're kind of, we're trying to bid. Hey, against... you know what? I've, I think we should ask people, email, send us an email, info at gooddaysirpodcast.com <laughs> if you would hire the Good Day Sir badass software engineers. <laughs> <laughs> and if we get enough emails, we will go file an LLC. Oh, God. <laughs> Putting it on the spot, huh? And I was—I mean, I mean, what, what? I, I had my fingers crossed the whole time. So that okay. means I don't have to—I don't have to live up to that promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what, where do you where do you start circulating this idea? Where do you start saying, "Hey, you know, this is what we do. This is how we do it." You know, is it is it just that? Is it just get a lead and try to communicate them with the process and see if it resonates? It's, it starts from the first communication you have with someone who might be wanting to do a project with you, and it's got to start at the client, not filtered through. Someone's sales department, the someone's PS organization, then to a then to a, a you know a Salesforce partners process because they these people all work um, they all work waterfall they the agile revolution was completely lost on them you know 
they know the old school way of big contracts, big upfront planning, big upfront design. Um, which you, is, it, which it, is sad because I don't, I don't really see people are getting their value out of that model. I, no, I don't either. I think they're getting screwed. Clients are getting screwed. Clients well, are think, getting screwed. I think we're all getting screwed. Well, we are. You're I think right everyone as an industry is getting you're screwed. Right about that. I guess I'm just thinking, I'm always thinking about the client. But yeah, you're right. We're always getting screwed. I mean, everyone's, it's not good for anyone. That model is, and, and there are, don't get me wrong, there are exceptions. Some things, like if you're going to build um, an implantable cardiac defibrillator, something I know a little bit about, you were not going to build that in some agile process. <laughs> there is a ton <laughs> of upfront planning. There's a yeah. ton of regulatory red tape. It's, and it, but that's also a type of engineering that personally does not appeal to me very much, which is why I don't go after that kind of work. Um, some people really love that. They love that, you know, designing something and building something like that, even yeah. though it does require just insane amounts of stupid meetings and loads of documentation, more UML diagrams than you could imagine, you know, just so much of that stuff. It's, and yeah. that's just, but that's that domain. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this is domain of general business software. Right. That probably you and I both spend, you know, 80% of our time. That's what we're, that's what we're doing. We're building general business software. Yeah. And that's the kind of software that it's 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 so it's such a better way to mitigate risk. It's such a better way to you have such better odds of getting of the client getting something valuable in the end if you use a you know a more agile process. If you just get in, you know, yes, come up with a plan, yes, get a project, yes, agree what people are going to pay everyone, but then start building things because you learn so much. You're not just building the software product; you're building knowledge. This team is building knowledge. There's so much they don't know about the thing they want to build. There's so much that's going to change between when they start the project and when they end the project. Mm-hmm. And the quicker you get in and start building, it, we, we can now start learning. And right. we can use that knowledge to incorporate in all these other things we're going to build as a part of that project. Well, and yeah, I mean, I guess with, with, with that kind of concept, it, it seems more like a partnership, like you're both sharing in the risk. It you're is. both involved it in this. It's, yep. not, it's not one side that's completely mitigated their risk over the other. And everyone's just trying to play this shell game of, well, you better document it because, you know, and, and that, that's some things I run into. Like, I have to specifically document that the client said, yes, I'm aware we're using this a certain way, but we're going to move forward anyways because we have a timeline and budget constraint. I have to actually physically document that in the document because people want me to protect our asses. Yeah. Our Fitbits. Yep. Sorry. Yep. And that, that just seems like this weird thing that I'm involved in where where I have to document and plan for everything and if it's not right because we're doing all this upfront planning it's it's going to result in more dollars and somehow that's going to be on me even though i really don't know what i don't know yet so we're all familiar with the the agile manifesto right the 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 the, the what is it the four principles or whatever but one of them is these are things we value more than others so and here's the example i want to give we value customer collaboration over contract negotiation. Now, that doesn't mean we don't negotiate contracts. We don't have contracts. We do. Mm-hmm. But in, I like to keep contracts smaller and simpler, and I'd much rather focus on, um, you know, from beginning to end, collaborating with the customer to, to make sure, to, again, to give us the best odds of them getting something that's valuable. Mm-hmm. Because the dirty truth of the software development business is that most of these projects basically fail. Um, the the, um, the ICE, what is it I, the ACM publishes mm-hmm. I think IEEE does as well um, these numbers on software projects and they I still think it's a majority I think I think it's over fifty percent of of uh, like these you know software IT projects fail and again the you know and I know everyone has different opinions I, I tend to 
you know, and there's God, there's so many flavors, and I could I can agree and disagree with a lot of different points on Scrum versus XP versus Crystal and all these things. But overall, I mean, I think the 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 principles of of the agile of an agile process are just such a better way to build software. It's such a better way for humans to work together to build something that's unknown. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to get through this together. We're gonna, all going to learn together. We're all going to make mistakes, but we're going to do things that are, we're going to do things in the smartest way possible that give us the best odds. And yeah, trust. That's how you, you got me on this twist with a trust. We've got to trust each other. Yeah. And that's why, like, I mean, I now when I get these, these clients that are, are people that, you know, they, I can tell they, and then maybe they don't know me and they shouldn't trust me. But if, you know, if we can't, if we can't develop some trust, if my history, my background, whoever referred them to me, whatever, doesn't give them, you know, level of trust. If, if the, if the time I spend with them to see if we have a project, if that, you know, if they can't develop a level of trust and, and, and if I can't, if I don't trust them, if I'm like, if, cause I'm, I feel like I'm really good now at sniffing out rotten clients a mile away. Um, there's yeah, there's red so, flags. So, here's, if, so if I don't trust them, yeah. and if they and if I feel like if I trust them, but I feel like they just I haven't built enough, I haven't built a very very much of a rapport, and they're not trusting me. I just I probably won't do the project. Yeah. Well, I, I think to balance that out is as I agree, and that comes from having that personal relationship. But when you're in a kind of, I don't even 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 in small consultancies where where you have a bunch of people over you, and there's certain people paying the bills, they don't have trust. They're not working with the clients directly. I am. I've built that trust with the client. Yeah. And when yep. we talk and we understand and we all nod, I feel like like we're okay. I feel like I don't have to document every single word we said, but yet I'm being asked to document every word we said because their fear is that we're going to deliver something. There's going to be some hiccup later on the road with our design that somehow we backed ourselves into a corner, which is entirely possible. I don't, I'm not perfect. Yeah, right. Um, but yet they want it documented because they want to be able to point the finger and say, well, this is what we agreed on. This yeah. is what you said. Yeah. And I I feel horrible doing that. I feel that's, horrible that's having also, to include in my design politics yeah, or yeah. As politics as I call it. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, there's there's it's not that you don't do you don't have contracts. You do. It's just that, um, I I never want to have a contract where we think we have agreed on everything up front, every detail of what something's going to do, of how it's going to work, of how it's going to look, of what the fields are, what the tables are, what the every screen documented. I mean, I've seen stacks this thick of user stories. Yeah, it's just it's ridiculous. And then we sign it. We also sign a big contract that's wrapped ar- that's wrapped around all those things. Yeah, I'm like, this is and that's I've seen that. I've seen that happen. It's and in, 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 I mean, to me, to think of that today is to me absolutely insane. But that being said, I realize people are still doing that that exact same way today, and that's just nuts. And that's why everyone's CYA. I mean, that's what that is. It's just massive amounts of CYA. Which which the funny thing about it is, it's it's one of the worst ways you can actually approach the project. When you think you're. You think you are yeah, covering plenty of people who who you think I, you're I, covering well, your ass and your company's ass, but you're not. You're actually you're actually dramatically reducing the chances that you're going to have a successful project. I mean, there's a lot of companies with contracts about you know how you know the ramifications of something failing or the ramifications of something um, not working out the way the way they expected. And there's all this this red tape wrapped around all these contracts. It's hard for me to imagine a world where people are shaking hands and agreeing on mutual risk. And moving on, yeah, and getting it done. It, it just it seems like we're so embedded in this world of of risk avoidance that that no one wants to. And, and I, I see this. I see it paralyze companies and making decisions. I've sat in a room while I'm trying to, you know, architect something. I hate that I'm using that as a verb. While I'm trying to design something, and um, 
nobody in the room wants to give me a, a flat decision. They're all scared. They're all scared because they don't to be, want to be know, responsible for it. And now I'm now I'm starting to feel that way. Now I'm starting how, to feel like I don't want to make a decision because I'm but, scared but now. But that's the way that whole project's going to go, John. That's the culture that has been created in that organization. Well, it's 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 common. And, it's and, when, common and when you need that. feedback and you need answers, everyone's going to be like, um, I don't know, ask Susie. I just yeah. no one wants to answer because no one trusts anyone. No, and everyone is in a is in a blameful uh, work environment. Yeah. Whereas what's it, it what's, really the, what's one of the principles culture. of agile? It's um, blameless blameless retrospectives. Yeah. I mean, if. If you know, if you that's 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 the way to kill a software team is to have is is for something when something goes wrong to start blaming people. Anyway, we are waxing uh, <laughs> length, lengthily. All right, well, let's put a bow around this. Um, thanks for sticking with us uh, through our uh, short absence, but uh, keep keep on with the. We love the e- the emails, right? Did we get through all of our emails? We did. Yeah, did. There was also, I mean, we'll get to this. Um, I think there was a person or two that um, that sent us some feedback over Slack that that I actually have in my note here, but we, didn't, we just didn't get to. So we'll get to those. But please uh, email us info at gooddaysirpodcast.com. Send us your you know ideas for topics, or if you have questions like uh, the were sent to us today, we we just we like getting those. I think it's fun. Provides good material. Uh, we have this Slack community that we talked about. Uh, if you're not in the Slack community and you are still listening to this, like two and a half hours in, uh, you. Mm, you're probably qualified to join. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> qualified. Uh, it's gooddaysirpodcast.com, our website. And just click on community. And uh, John will add to the Slack. Uh, reviews are great in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever the hell you can leave reviews. I don't even know, but they tend to help. What else, John? Tell a friend, right? Tell yeah. your friends. Come on. You guys go to these <laughs> these conferences and uh, your French, French toast. Uh, <laughs> French toast. <laughs> French toast dreaming? I dream about uh, French toast. I mean, honestly, uh, it's, it's a delicious thing. You know what? I don't, I don't, we really, got, uh, I don't really like cinnamon that much. So. Uh, you're so weird. Um, there's, uh, what's it? What's that? Yeah, um, uh, I just said it. Surf Force? Surf Force. Right, which we're a sponsor of. Um, yeah, sure. As people need to know about this, this podcast. <laughs> all right, John. That's all I got. That's all you got. Yep. And to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.